Good morning. This meeting will come to order. Welcome to the uh, November 3rd, 2022 regular meeting of the Government Audit and Oversight Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I'm Supervisor Dean Preston, Chair of the Committee, joined by uh, Vice Chair Connie Chan and uh, soon to be joined by uh, Committee Member Supervisor Raphael Mandelman. Um, the Committee Clerk is uh, Stephanie Cabrera and I want to thank the team at SFGov TV, including Kalina Mendoza and Corwin Cooley, uh, for staffing this meeting. Madam Clerk, do you have any announcements? Yes, thank you. The Board of Supervisors and its committees are now convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment, while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The Board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, and then we will take those who are waiting on the telephone line. For those watching channel 26, 28, 78, or 99, and sfgovtv.org, the public comment call-in number is streaming across the screen. The number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. Then enter the meeting ID 2493-481-7808. Then pound and then pound again. When connected, you will be in listening mode only, and you will hear a notice say that you're in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up and the public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak, and those on the telephone should dial star three to be added to the speaker line. If you're on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices you may be using. As indicated, we will be taking public comment from those attending in person first, then we will go to those on the telephone line. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Government Audit and Oversight Committee Clerk, at stephanie.cabrera, C as in Charles A, B as in Bay, R-E-R-A, at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall at 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. Finally, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of November 15th, unless otherwise stated. And that concludes my announcement. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Please call item one. Item number one is a hearing on the Ethics Department's mandatory audit process for city candidates and committees receiving public financing and the audit process for lobbyist disclosure statements and to review the performance of the Ethics Department's audit process to date including any necessary enhancements of the audit process to ensure the timely auditing of campaigns and the public's right to review reports and requesting the Ethics Department to report. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001. When prompted, enter meeting ID 2493-481-7808, then pound and pound again. If you haven't done so already, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. The system will prompt and indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, this hearing request is sponsored by Supervisor Peskin, who is with us here today. It's also co-sponsored by our uh, Vice Chair, Supervisor Chan. Um, and so I will uh, turn it over to Supervisor Peskin. Thank you for your leadership on this. And uh, the floor is yours for any remarks and uh, to introduce our speakers. Thank you, Chair Preston, and thank you for calendaring this item. Um, when I first ran for the Board of Supervisors 22 years ago, 
there was no public financing and there was no mandatory audits. There were random audits of campaigns. Uh, but now with the advent of public financing, which requires audits on each and every campaign that uh, seek and obtain public financing, uh, the number of audits that uh, fall upon the ethics department to perform has vastly uh, increased. Um, as a candidate, uh, fortunately successful uh, for office that has, that believes in public financing, um, which has uh, I think had very positive results in diminishing uh, outside spending in local uh, candidate races and has leveled the playing field. Um, I have partaken of public financing uh, and did so a couple of years ago in the 2020 election and I share a similar experience uh, as that of the co-sponsor in this hearing, Supervisor Chan, which is now two years after that election, uh, the audit has yet to be performed. So I uh, am one of those uh, elected officials who has never liked to have open campaign accounts. Um, and generally, when all debts are paid uh, and thank you letters written, I uh, file the appropriate forms to terminate the committee, um, which by the way, in the old days, people didn't do because any leftover funds could be used for office holder expenses and the like. Um, but now with public financing, leftover funds uh, are returned to the city treasury. Um, <clears throat> and so I inquired over the last couple of years ago, uh, over the last couple of years as to the status of the 2020 audits um, and none of them have been performed. And as a matter of fact, I have been unable even to obtain an audit schedule for when they will be performed. And to that end, I thought uh, this was actually a matter of broader concern to the Government Audit and Oversight Committee about uh, where ethics is in their audit processes writ large. Uh, I was hopeful that we would receive from the department a actual uh, report prior to this hearing that we could see where 2018 audits and 2016 audits and uh, Obviously, there are uh, next week a number of campaigns, including that of our colleague from District 8, where public financing has been involved in uh, the even-numbered supervisorial district races. Um, I did recall that there was a period uh, earlier uh, where the ethics department had fallen quite behind on their audits, and I contacted the controller of the city and county of San Francisco, Ben Rosenfield, who at that time actually uh, offered controller services to help reduce the backlog of audits at the ethics department. Uh, the controller has informed me that he has made that offer again to uh, the ethics department to help them uh, reduce or eliminate their backlog and create an audit schedule, which I think is incumbent on any department to have. Uh, and my understanding was that the department had not taken the controller up on that generous offer. So with that, uh, Leanne Pelham, who is the department head of the ethics department, is here to report. And I would like to welcome Ms. Pelham to the hearing this morning. Thank you, Mr. Peskin, and 
committee members. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to be with you this morning. I uh, had intended to be alive, but unfortunately I need to be remote this morning. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about this issue. It is clearly something that um, the committee, the members of the public and the ethics commission shares a very deep uh, concern about um, regarding one of our core functions at the ethics commission. Um, let me see if I might just um, start with a bit of context and perhaps setting the record straight um, and uh, regarding um, Mr. Peskin's understanding of, of where the audit process currently is. Uh, we have been in touch with uh, the controller's office. We are working on a contract so that the Ethics Commission itself can own the contract for external audit services. This is something we've used over time. And now that that opportunity is again available to us, we are proceeding with that. Um, uh, but just in terms of where we are with our audits, um, it is the case that here we are in November of 2022. And there are two audits from 2019 that remain to be completed. As we have in prior uh, uh, months, we have been public with our commission at our commission meetings to report on progress and delays of our audit program. Uh, there are a number of factors that led to the delay of our audits not being completed until the end of this year, including the pandemic and including some staffing vacancies and how long it takes to fill those vacancies, as well as responding to and incorporating fully recommendations made by the uh, uh, BLA, the Budget and Legislative Analysts uh, Performance Audit that we fully embraced the recommendations of back when it was issued in August of 2020. Um, and so some of those recommendations included ensuring uh, that we have strong procedures in place for our audits, that they're consistent procedures, they're applied objectively, and that we're very transparent about our work. Uh, we had been making progress prior to the BLA's audit in terms of timeframes for completing our audits. Uh, that was delayed a bit with the confluence of all of those activities. But the bottom line is we're very um, excited to have an audit manager and uh, currently three audit staff uh, who with supplemental work by our external audits that we expect to put together in the coming year with the Office of Contract Administration support and working with the controller's office now that there are some temporary resources again available to us, um, I think we will continue to make progress as the BLA audit recommended and envisioned and as we in fact were making progress uh, prior to the, the issuance of that report. Um, it is not the case that we have denied working or denied resources from the controller in the past. The issue was one of timing that resources we had used in the controller's office were not available at the time that we needed to secure them. Um, but that is certainly the case that the controller has been very supportive and we have taken advantage at every opportunity as we are now. So we're very appreciative of that. Um, but a larger, by larger perspective, I think as, as members of the committee know, um, our audit function is really a core function at the commission. It is a mandatory requirement under the law that we provide oversight and audits of our public financing resources. We know they're important, they're critically important to city campaigns and to candidates. Uh, and we are very much um, in front of ensuring those, the stewardship of those public funds. So during the audit cycle, during the campaign cycle, we actually do quite a bit of a front end audit to ensure that contributors and claims submitted by candidates are vetted and that the appropriate qualification uh, and disbursements are made for candidates. And so we do a lot of sort of pre-auditing at the front end, which we've been doing during this election cycle. That's something that our audit team is also responsible for. So they wear many hats. Um, but under the law, we have an authority and requirement to do audits of public financed candidates. 
we have a requirement to do audits of lobbyists who are registered with the city to, to verify their compliance with the laws. Um, because of our resources at the commission, that is not something we did for a number of years. We simply didn't have the ability to do those. We've started those and we're on track to complete our lobbying audits of six lobbyists by the end of this, uh, by the end of this calendar year as well. Um, separately, we are also doing oversight as recommended by the controller in one of the public integrity reports they issued in the wake of the recent city scandals. Uh, to do a post-compliance review of financial disclosure statements by, that are filed by city employees. So our audit division is driving that process to put together uh, what that procedure will look like to provide, again, some extra eyes and oversight uh, after the filing of those statements, and that's a process that's underway. We've been in conversation with the controller's office about that as well, because we know that there are some tools that that office uh, is likely to have that we can do some thought partnering about making the, the post-filing review process for Form 700s as robust as possible. So in short, an oversight process that we have at the commission, it, it, when we call it audits, it's rather shorthand for both mandatory publicly financed audits, mandatory lobbying audits, a, a post-filing review process for statement of economic interests. And then in addition to that, we also have the ability to do discretionary audits or select audits uh, for other bases, other objective standards that we would apply you, uh, uh, so that we would audit and provide some oversight to other types of campaign committees that are active during the election cycle, but that have not received public funds. The last time we were able to do a, a discretionary audit was in 2018 from that cycle. Um, we had some, at that time, we're able to use external auditing resources through the controller's office. So we did do some audits uh, during that election cycle to conduct uh, reviews of, of non-publicly financed committees. Um, but to the point that Mr. Peskin and, and, and I think the committee is interested in, of course, public financing is, is critical and it's something that we uh, have been working hard to finalize. I mentioned that we have two audits from the 2019 election cycle that are being completed by the end of December. Uh, we have also initiated two of I believe it's 14 required audits uh, of publicly financed candidates from the 2020 election cycle. Uh, and then we will anticipate starting audits of the 2022 election cycle. There will be five candidates who are required to be audited because they receive public funds. We anticipate that we'll start those in uh, 2020, excuse me, 2023 uh, and with the assumption that we'll have those uh, temporary or, or sort of a bridge uh, uh, resources with external auditing resources available to us. So uh, there are a number of, of, of factors and, and resources that we need to juggle to do this. Um, we do have a, uh, every election cycle when the commission audits, uh, begins its audits, uh, we report to the commission publicly about what committees are being audited, what is the basis for the audits. When we are doing discretionary audits, we describe the basis for the selection because we want it to be clear that we are not selecting uh, with subjective reasons, particular committees to be audited. Uh, and in the past, we've looked at things like where the public interest is greatest because candidates received the most in public financing or perhaps spent the most on their on, in their election campaigns. And so, for example, for the 2020 audits, we reported to the commission when we uh, discussed those the, that, that cycle's uh, process um, that we were going to start auditing candidates who had received the most in public financing. There are candidates who received less in public financing who will be later in the queue. 
as I said, we'll be working with external auditors to try and move that process forward as quickly as possible because we know that it's really most, in help, most helpful, um, not just from a public accountability standpoint, to provide the public with information about how well committees did in complying with applicable rules to them. It's also a really important tool for committees, and particularly first-time candidates, to get information about how well they did in complying with the laws, because we know that often first-time candidates become repeat candidates, and we, want, we think it's a, a tremendous um, uh, learning opportunity to talk about the rules, how they apply, and how folks can strengthen their record-keeping systems to make their audits um, uh, more smooth and to result in less, uh, fewer findings. Um, one last note I would have, uh, and I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm sure there, there may be many from committee members. Um, but uh, as we went into the BLA's audit in February of 2020, um, when the audit was issued in August of 2020, um, just as a, a, a point of information, the uh, BLA uh, noted that the time frame for completing audits um, was, uh, had for the 2016 election, had, had been about 21 months. And, and again, I don't think any of us in the room or anybody listening is satisfied with that kind of a time frame. We're always working to improve that. But we also saw in that report that the BLA noted that um, we, um, the, at that time going into the audit, uh, had been reducing the time frame from beginning to end of an audit um, to about 10 months to the completion. That to me is a much better time frame. Um, we cannot start a publicly financed audit until after all of the campaign disclosure statements for the particular election come in the door. So that pra in practice means uh, 60 days after January 31st. So early spring of the year following the election is the, is the date that would be the earliest for us to start uh, an audit. Uh, and so um, I think there were some good signs that even before the BLA audit, we were making progress. I think some of the factors during the uh, during the pandemic, uh, with hiring and retention issues, always a challenge for departments to secure positions. We did ask for an additional senior auditor position in this last budget, but that was an audit, uh, the mayor opted not to include that as one of the budget recommendations. Uh, we have not been shy, as you know, about asking for resources as we need them, and we will certainly plan to do that uh, going forward as we need to as well. Uh, just, again, uh, very, very committed as a department, as a commission. I'm sure I can speak for them. We are very committed to wanting to make sure that our audit function um, effectively provides stewardship for the public financing uh, and that it provides accountability for folks running for office and provides the opportunity for people to learn from the process as well. So we are continuing to make our, our internal uh, process improvements, uh, re explore and use resources at every opportunity, which we have and will continue to do, and know that um, our current status is not sufficient and that we are working hard to improve that um, while also making progress to demonstrate results. So with that, I, I'm happy to answer any more detailed questions that the committee might have uh, about uh, where we are. And I'm also happy to provide a committee with a, a specific summary um, of the, the time frame, the committees that are underway and the time frames we expect to see them um, initiated and completed at this, at this state. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Director Pelham. Um, I would appreciate and would have appreciated having that information in writing prior to this meeting, but given the dearth of written information, which sounds like will be forthcoming, am I correct in having just ascertained that there are 21 publicly financed campaigns that 
do not yet have completed audits. Is that what I heard? Uh, I'm looking at the list that I have. Two. Two in 2019, 14 in uh, 19, I believe. Two, there are two for 2019. There will be uh, 16 required for the 2020 campaign. So that's 18 committee audits that have not been completed. We are still in the 2022 election, but once that election is completed, there will be five committees that require auditing from the from this current election cycle. So that's a total of 23 by my math, unless I've mistakenly counted. Got it. And the two from 2019, you said you are in the midst of and wrapping up by the audits by December 31st, by December, yes, by December 31st of this of calendar year, and of Correct. the remaining 16, two are underway, and you chose that by virtue of the fact that they were, they used the most amount of public financing. That's correct. And the remaining 14, you do not have a schedule for, but are in the process of obtaining outside resources to do it. We, we have on target, yes, assuming we have those resources, we plan to start those other audits by the third quarter of fiscal year 23, which would be by the end of March. By the end of so March. So typically what we do, right, we would use our, our internal auditors, our internal staff. We would also use the external auditors to assist with, with any audits that, uh, that will help us get over the, the hump. So they may be, the 2020 audits may be uh, both conducted by our staff as well as by the external auditors, whatever we need to do to try and wrap those up as thoroughly and objectively and completely as possible and also do it as timely as possible given the resources we have. And you think that you will commence those remaining 14 by the end of March and the time frame for completing them is somewhere between 10 and 21 months. Did I get that right? I would say that the completing them, if we have the external auditors, it's, we would expect to complete them within 12 months. 21 months was prior when we did not have external auditing support. So I think we would have a 10 to 12 month window if we have external auditors on board assisting with those. And what all is entailed in that year long audit process? How complicated, what, what do you look at? How complicated is this for the, what will soon be 23 campaigns? Well, the answer is it depends. Uh, it depends on the state of the committee's records, uh, the state of their record keeping, uh, the, the degree to which committees cooperate timely in providing records to us when requested. Uh, the law provides that when we ask for records, committees are required to provide them within 10 days. That doesn't always happen, um, but we also know that sometimes it's uh, difficult with committees who may have multiple candidates and they're busy with other elections. So we try to be as accommodating as we can, but also hold to some time frames for the obvious reasons we're talking about here today. Um, I think that when we look at our audits and we talk about standardizing procedures, it's everything from verifying that the contributions committees reported actually came from contributors, those contributors, uh, verifying the kinds of expenditures that committees are reporting. Um, we, again, we do look at the public financing. Uh, we look to see if other laws uh, are, uh, are uh, complied with, such as the contractor contributor ban. Uh, it applies to certain types of contracts. Uh, so 
essentially what our auditors do and what the external auditors would do uh, is an, a broad scope of verifying that what is reported on campaign statements is in fact accurate uh, and also looking to see that there are not indications of activities not reported on campaign statements that might also have been required to be uh, disclosed. And then to look at uh, uh, other various laws about disclosure requirements and disclaimer requirements for materials committees spend, uh, send out, uh, basically to look at uh, the host of city laws and see how candidates did in complying and state laws as well where they're applicable. Thank you. Director. One piece I would add, yeah. I'm sorry, if I might, one piece that I would add is after the, the sort of testing phase, if you will, is done, um, there's an opportunity for uh, the auditors. Uh, ultimately, we produce written audit reports that are posted on the commission's website. Uh, we think it's important for public transparency, of course. Um, the audits, once the testing phase is done, if there are material findings that we have seen during the course of our audit testing, we provide a draft audit report to the committees uh, to provide their responses and any comment uh, that they might have. They may have at that time, and often do, um, find new materials that they didn't provide initially uh, or have some other uh, information or explanations for the information that our auditors found. And we look at that information after they've provided to see if it changes any of the findings. And it may or it may not, but there's often a, a process of going back and forth for the committees for some time period to ensure that we fully understand what documentation they have and to fully understand that our audit findings are accurate uh, and based soundly on the documentation that we have and uh, information and evidence we've had from the committees. Once the draft report is finalized based on following that process, we then provide the committees with a draft report in final form for any final comment then they provide their comments and then we finalize them and post them publicly. So um, the process is always one that can be a bit challenging, uh, juggling, um, making sure that committees have every opportunity to respond while also making sure that that process isn't unduly delayed. Uh, so we try, we don't have rules that say you must do this within 10 days uh, or we will issue the report. Um, but there have been some times when we've had to say to committees that we do need to issue a report and if information is not provided by X date, we can always add it later. Uh, because we do know we have a number of committees and campaigns and audits and other work in addition to audits that has to be completed with our limited staff and resources. Uh, but that's generally the overview of the, of the process. And of course, the last piece of it is uh, any audit that we conduct would be as a routine matter forwarded to our enforcement staff or any other law, uh, appropriate law enforcement agency. Um, but are, they're reviewed by our enforcement staff to see if there are any material findings that weren't follow up. And that could range from a, a warning letter, uh, no action at all, or potential enforcement action if there are significant findings in the audit. And Director Pelham, uh, in terms of your existing in-house, not contracted either through the controller or through other third parties, how many staff do you have that's devoted to this function? We have an audit manager, an audit and compliance review manager, uh, which was a new position filled uh, in April of 2021. Uh, we have three auditors. Uh, they're administrative analysts under the city's job classification called 1822s for those who follow those sorts of things. Uh, and as I mentioned, we had asked for but not received an 1823 or a senior auditor for the division. So currently we have three auditors, one audit manager, uh, responsible for lobbying audits, campaign audits, uh, post-compliance review of Form 700s, our economic interest statements, and also uh, qualifying and dispersing funds during election seasons 
uh, for our public financing program, which inherently uh, pushes back some audit work as we work through that uh, disbursement process, which is bound by very specific uh, deadlines under the law. And Director Pelham, those four positions, the three 1822s and the audit manager, have those been filled or vacant over time? They have been, well, at both. Um, the, as I mentioned, the audit manager position was one that we had secured, I think, the year before. We hired our current manager in April of 2021. Um, that uh, when we have, we had a vacancy of, I believe, 10 months in one of the audit positions that we were able to fill just last November. We were able to fill that position with somebody who had experience doing campaign and lobbying audits at the state level. So that was tremendous. Um, a tremendous resource to be able to bring on board with that experience. We have uh, another auditor who has prior experience uh, working on the compliance side for committees in a prior life. And so that experience also uh, has been helpful. But it, we, the positions, when they do open, uh, they are civil service positions generally. Uh, and we do find, and the BLA audit noted this as well as a separate finding unrelated to audits, but more generally, that the city's hiring process um, uh, to fill PCS positions can be quite lengthy and add unduly to delays in operational work and completion of, of priority work at departments. I don't think that's just the Ethics Commission. I think that's generally true throughout the city. Um, but so right now we do have three of the positions full and we hope to retain for quite a long time all three of those positions and, and possibly add to them as well. And the four audits that are currently underway, the two from 2019 and the two from 2020, those are being conducted in-house? Correct, correct. And we do not yet have, oh, excuse me, go ahead. Please. No, go ahead. We are doing those in-house, uh, again, at the same time that we're completing the, the, uh, the lobbying audit and developing the Form 700 review process. The status of the external audit uh, a, a relationship or external audit resources that we're working to get. We're, we have been meeting with the Office of Contract Administration. Uh, you may may not recall in the budget that it's a big one, but in the last year the, we did uh, secure funds for a uh, memorandum of understanding to provide funds to the Office of Contract Administration to help us develop uh, an external contract that the Ethics Commission can be the owner of. Um, we are a very flat, understaffed office historically when it comes to administrative functions and procurement. So we don't have our own contracting staff, for example, like mo many departments do. So when we have a contract, we heavily rely on other city partners to w walk us through that process. This is a point where we are trying to establish a multi-year external auditing contract for our publicly financed candidates. Uh, we are able to do that with funding from the election campaign fund, uh, as established by the voters, there is a small percentage of that fund that can be used for administrative services. So we are using that uh, that proportion to, as appropriate, uh, to establish an external auditing um, vendor uh, relationship where we can have an external auditor on board uh, as a regular in the regular course of events. So that's a conversation and work that we're, we've been starting with the Office of Contract Administration since those funds are now in our shop and able to be spent in that way this fiscal year. And then, as I mentioned, working with the controller's office, 
there is a current list that has been sort of re-upped since the last time we talked with the controller and we're not able to use resources, but there is a, cur a, a current external auditing list that exists within the controller's office that we've discussed with the controller and um, have a, a green light. So we're pursuing having a temporary sort of piggybacking, if you will, on that list so that we can secure those resources even in advance of having our own contract over a multi-year period. Because I think, as you know, establishing your own contract in the city can take some time, but we do have the resources and that relationship with the controller's office to, to, to tap into existing pool of external vendors. So we'll be doing that to help jumpstart the work on the 2020 uh, campaigns uh, in the coming, in the coming uh, months. And once we have those on board, that could be a process that perhaps takes three to four months, I would imagine, uh, from our prior experience to finalize. Uh, so it could be by late spring that we have that external auditor on board now to help with the 2020 audits and make some headway on those. So your audit manager has been on board for over six months and you still don't have a comprehensive audit plan as to the vast majority uh, at least 14 of the outstanding audits and won't have that until sometime in 2023. Well, no, I, I very much disagree with that statement. I don't think that's an accurate characterization. I think what I just described was a plan that we have given the resources that we have. The audit manager who came on board in 2021, which I guess would be about 18 months, spent the first six to eight months working on developing those standardized operating procedures, templates, and ensuring that our auditors' work was consistent across auditors and that their understanding was consistent across auditors. That was critically important foundational work to make sure that we are doing solid audits and that work was done in the first six to eight months of our manager being on board. Uh, and so since that time, we have been, as I mentioned, doing lobbying audits, trying to make headway on the 2019 publicly financed audits, uh, following the pandemic in which one of our auditors served as a DSW or disaster service worker for over 12 months. Uh, so that also had a, an impact on the program. But, but I would say that the, what, I, what I have been attempting to describe is that this is the plan that we have. We do have a schedule for what we are working on, when we expect to complete them, what we have targeted to start, when we have targeted to start them, the resources we will use uh, and anticipate using to start those and to complete those audits. So at this point, that is... Uh, I, perhaps that's not a plan, but in your, in your view, uh, with respect, uh, Supervisor Peskin, but that's the best plan that we have, given what is known and what is achievable at this point. I would sure. say the last piece of our plan is, is to look and see where we need to supplement our existing staff resources once again with a senior auditor to help with the work and to help review the work and keep all of these projects um, on task at the same time. We have multiple competing priorities that we are trying to juggle as best as we can, and that is the role of the, the uh, audit manager as well. Director Pelham, before I return this to the chair and the other member who wishes to speak, let, let me say the following things. Uh, thing number one is that you and I agree that auditing is definitely a core function. Uh, I have to express my candid disappointment that after many years of this being a core function, that the foundations are not there and are being built or recreated. This is a function that at this point in the department's trajectory, 
should have long been established and should be a part of the bureaucratic routine and not a game of catch-up. And then, candidly, I disagree, uh, nor have you put in writing, despite my repeated requests as a customer, as a consumer, to put in writing when the 2020 audit will be done, you're making high-level, broad representations that are not in writing. Uh, respectfully, the representations of the controller relative to his offers to your department are very different than what he represents, but I don't need to get into a game of, you know, whether they're offering you resources that you have not timely or are now timely accepting. Uh, the reality is that this is not a function that has been well overseen, nor can you actually provide what you are representing right now, which is a real schedule with real dates. I, I would love to see it. I would love to see you furnish this committee, and I will ask the chair to continue this to the call of the chair, an actual document that says this is when we're going to get to these audits, that exists, this is when we're gonna to get to the audits going forward, this is what our schedule is going to be and you can rely on it. That is missing from your department. Thank you for that perspective, Mr. Peskin. I'm happy to get you that information. I'm happy to share that with the committee. And again, I will say that the work that we have done with the controller's office, in fact, has been one where we have taken advantage of every opportunity to use the resources available to us. Um, the information that I'm happy to provide to this committee for, for public consumption um, following this hearing today will describe, as I did, what audits we know to be completed, need to be completed, what dates we have currently scheduled to start them, and when we anticipate completing them, given the resources we have identified to complete that work. And that is, I think, our honest depiction and our fairest depiction of what we can accomplish and what we plan to accomplish. I don't at all disagree with those who say the Ethics Commission, 30 years almost into its existence, should absolutely have an audit program that is running uh, as we all expect it to. I can only speak to the last six and a half years of attempting to secure an audit manager, for example, to help the program run as a mature program. Uh, but clearly, we all share the goal of making sure that our audits are strong, are robust, are effective, and are timely. And I can commit to you, on behalf of the staff as well as the commission, that remains a serious and significant priority for our commission. So we look forward to working with you, the controller's office, the OCA, and other city partners to make that happen. It's of critical importance to the confidence of the public, the trust of the public, in both how we run our campaigns and in the work of the Ethics Commission. So you have our commitment on that front. Thank you, Director Pelham. Um, and uh, I, I do just wanna echo the sentiment of um, my colleague just around mapping some of this out. It, it's pretty unusual we have a hearing that's announced and before GAO and we don't get some of this information either in a PowerPoint presentation or in writing before. And I, and I just wanna say, I mean, we, this is, this is an issue of great importance, as are the other issues on our agenda. And it just, the more we can, and for future reference, for, for future hearings, the more that we can get some of what you've, we've spent some time uh, 
getting verbally uh, in a presentation prior to the hearing, it is helpful both for the committee and efficient use of our time, but also for the public because they can then view that kind of presentation that is scanned. Um, before I turn it over to Supervisor Chan, I did just want to ask uh, uh, to get a time frame from you of when um, that more detailed description of the audit schedule will be provided to the committee. We can provide that to you by the end of the week. I can provide it to you at the Great. end of today. Uh, if you want further context, uh, as my comments indicated, it would be uh, by, I guess, close of business tomorrow. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Vice Chair Chan. Certainly. Thank you, uh, Chair Preston. I, I think for me, um, the question that with the audit process, I also am curious about uh, both the process and the audit results. Um, and, and I, I think that when there's a delay in the audit process, then there is a delay in terms of the audit results to be known and to be made known to the public. And and at times then, because the long delay, then it defeats the purpose if we do find violations in the audits. And I think it's a disservice to the public and San Franciscans when the the known audit results in, in especially in the case that violations are found uh, is, is so like two years later or three years later, um, it, it really is, it's a disservice. Um, so the question that I have is, as you continue uh, on and try to, uh, you know, create, to clear your backlog, um, do you in any way or your team in any way uh, have a different uh, track for uh, violators that, that, that already found in violation in their previous um, audit and then now they're coming back again for public financing uh, for their campaign com committees? And, and how do you treat them? Or do you even treat them differently at all, if at all? Um, thank you. Um Supervisor Chan, that is a very, very interesting question. Um, the, the short answer is uh, no, we, we don't uh, fast track or treat committees differently uh, because they may have had a finding in the past um, related to any particular issue. Uh, our, our goal through the written audit report and the committee's engagement in that process is to address findings if needed through our enforcement process, uh, assuming that has happened I, I think we would consider the matter resolved. If that hasn't happened because the issue wasn't perhaps material or didn't rise to the level of enforcement, um, then you know we would continue to look uh, at those findings in the normal course of our audit testing and uh, and, and keep an uh, sort of eye on whether the pattern is continuing. Uh, but it, it, that's something that you know could be worth exploring. I think we'd want to make sure that whatever steps we take, we're treating every committee um, as objectively as possible and with all fairness uh, due to them. So, but I think that's an interesting question you raise and something that we could certainly uh, put some further thought to and discussion around. I, I, I would appreciate it. I, I think, again, it's more for the fact that you have to clear the backlog and it's at times it feels like the audit results is not timely. And Again, I, I think that the goal of an audit is to, for transparency, uh, make sure that no one is violating the law, the ethics law. And, and in the events that they do, I think that the public has the right to inquire uh, the violations uh, further, if need be. So I think those are the questions that I have about it, it, uh, untimely violation found is uh, tends to then uh, have no, seems to tend to have no 
consequences, at least uh, you know, sometimes in the public opinion, the court of the public opinions. So thank you, Chair Preston. That's all the questions I have for today. Thank you, Vice Chair Chan. Um, one, uh, one thing that I'm uh, trying to um, wrap my brain around is how this, um, the timing of audits um, interacts with basically the closure of these committees. Like one, one, one broader concern that I have, and just looking back, and someone can correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but, but I believe as a city, back in, I think it was when I arrived in San Francisco, maybe, 93, or there, there was a ballot measure to ban what, was then, what were then called office holder accounts. These were accounts that were basically slush funds, funds, and they are a really bad practice. Um, so they were banned by voters. In their place, what emerged was politicians, and I want to be clear, I mean, our mayor was a major, uh, user of this loophole, but so were many other politicians across the board, you know, progressive, moderate, you name it. Um, it always struck me as strange. These, these campaign accounts were held open, essentially indefinitely, and then contributions could be received, and what's really surprising is there's virtually no regulation on how those monies can be spent. So pretty much anything is fair game. Like it's it's a it basically are office holder accounts, but under a different name. And so I have always felt and and that our city should do what Los Angeles did uh, to to end that practice. And they basically require campaign accounts to close within six months of an election. And it was uh, always my intention when I ran for office and you know that I would do that only to encounter the reality that if you take public financing, which I think is we generally are trying to encourage uh, as, as uh, leveling the playing field here, that if you do that and you talk to anyone who advises you, they will tell you, well, you don't want to close your account until the audit is done. So I think one of our roles here as an audit and oversight committee is not just looking at sort of what is your audit schedule and how can that you know, be accelerated or prioritized. But it's also how we reconcile, it seems like um, it's, so I, I, I'm interested if you have any comments, but I just am trying, it, it seems like a very, um, an unintended consequence of delayed audits is that political candidates keep their committees open for year upon year upon year, and I don't see a way to avoid that other than either having these audits accelerated through the support you need or done by weather controller or someone else so that they can be done timely and candidates can go ahead and, and close their account, or electeds or candidates can close their accounts. Supervisor Peskin. Yeah, Supervisor Preston, I, I appreciate that. And um, while I don't think you can spend public finance dollars on office holder expenses, uh, I will say another reality, which is Director Pelham will tell you what she told me, which is, well, there's nothing that prevents you from closing your account. And the answer is, well, you'd be an idiot to close your account for the following reason, which is that when they audit you, your prof almost every one of us has a professional CPA firm that runs our uh, campaigns. 
So that, that's how you don't get in trouble with the ethics commission is you don't use volunteers, you use a professional firm, and that firm charges money. And when they get, when the audit comes, they spend time and they charge the campaign money. If you close your account, that money comes out of your personal checking account because there's no campaign account open anymore. It costs money to be audited. So the reason you keep your excess funds in there is to pay for that. So when Director Pelham says to me, well, supervisor, you can close your account anytime you want, well, that just means that I'm going to be taking money out of my, you know, paycheck to do it, which is nobody would do that. So audit delayed is, you know, audit denied, and, and, that's, and, that's the, and that's the problem here. And to add to that, you have candidates, like in this cycle, who ran with public financing in 2020, their audit hasn't been done, they're running again in 2022, the voters might have something they should know, but, you know, uh, what I'm really hearing as to the 2020 audits is that many of these remaining 14 audits, or 16, depending on how you want to count it, aren't going to be done until 2024. That is outrageous. What, what I would add, Supervisor Peskin, I, I think there is more concern, though, also um, around the, what is in those accounts. You're correct that the public financing dollars are limited in how they could be expended. I don't think that's true for the subsequent contributions. Like, I don't think there is anything barring, and in fact, it's a practice that has been used for, again, for 20, 30 years in this building by, by electeds of, of, of all uh, political perspectives. I, there's nothing that would bar someone from going out, seeking a $500 contribution from someone into that account, and then spending that on their trip to go meet with uh, the governor in Sacramento and stay in a hotel or, or take a class or what, you know, whatever they want. Um, and when, when we've looked into this in the past, it's remarkable how broad that is. So um, I think we, we do have, and from an, from an oversight perspective, I just, and the reason I bring it up is it just, it, the importance of closing these audits as quickly as possible is that much more heightened because as a practical matter for the reasons Supervisor Peskin is stating, these are gonna stay open until the audits are closed. Um, and and my, my personal view is if that's taken more than a year after an election closes, and it sounds like it's taking Far, it's going to take far more than that. There's no plan on the table that would have audits done within a year after an election. And if that's going to be the case, I think we really need to look at how do we get there, right? I, you know, is it through a more robust involvement of the controller's office or other external support? Um, because otherwise we just have what are effectively officeholder accounts uh, under the name of campaign committee accounts staying open for year after year after year. And, and that's a loophole that I hope is one when we do some uh, you, you know, that eventually lands on a ballot, right? I mean, with that, we should do what LA did and everyone should have to close their accounts within a set amount of time, but, uh, but we can't. Um, so, I, Director Pelham, I, I want to give you an opportunity if there's anything you want to add to, to that uh, discussion. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Preston. I, I um, very much share the, the concerns you're both raising about needing to close out audits much sooner than we currently do. Um, I think the one thing I would add about officeholder accounts is at least my recollection when I was in Los Angeles for a number of years, 
they do have office holder accounts there, but the office holder accounts themselves were highly regulated. So there were very specific timeframes, uh, uh, contribution limits that applied, uh, purposes for which those funds could be spent and not spent. So that, as, as I think you were indicating, there may be some other alternatives to look at down the road about uh, not allowing a sort of unintended consequence to occur that creates crazy audit results um, or timing results, but to perhaps look more rigorously at an office holder account structure that in fact does provide some very clear strict regulation of those funds and that perhaps Thank meets you. these other issues that we're talking about as well. So that may be a, an ongoing discussion. Thank but you. I, I do appreciate the perspectives you're both sharing. Thanks. And just one last question I had is, um, are there any limitations as to who does these audits? Like, you know, do they have to be done by auditors at ethics versus controller versus an outside firm? Are we under any, is that just a, a, a policy choice or, or is there a, an ordinance or some other guidance as to who has to do them? Uh, no, the, the, the language is that it mandates the ethics commission to conduct them. Uh, the language also provides that upon request, the controller shall provide assistance to the commission. Uh, and as I mentioned, we have used that in the past. Uh, but it is a combination, I think, uh, a historical practice, I would say, that the commission has had an audit staff, that the commission has used resources with the controller's office in partnership with them, and that we have tapped since, I believe, 2012 or 2014 might have been the first year that I recall, the uh, commission tapped the resources of an external auditing uh, entity to help with these audits. I think with the growing demands that, that uh, we have as a commission in terms of ensuring lobbying audits, ensuring a post-compliance review per the controller's report, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and also addressing discretionary audits. I mean, we, we, do, we have talked a bit about public financing audits this morning, but our discretionary audit function to look with an objective standard and select committees who perhaps are raising and spending far more than any publicly financed candidate ever would. Uh, what are we doing to provide effective oversight on those activities and to provide the public some assurance that those committees are complying? That's something we haven't even been talking about and we haven't been doing enough of, in my view, because of our resource limitations. So I think all of those demands are gonna require that we really rethink and continue to strengthen our auditing resources across the board going forward. Thank you. Um, any final comments of Reza Peskin? No, I'll, I look forward to seeing this in writing and would like to continue the matter to the call of the chair if it pleases the committee. So moved. Uh, Madam Clerk, please call the roll. Oh, wait, public comment. Public comment. I'm sorry. Thank you so much. Uh, let's open this item up for public comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number one? Please line up to your right. Remote call-in members, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. Seeing no in-chamber comments, we'll go to the phone lines. Mr. Corwin, can you please provide the stats? There are currently zero listeners. There are no calls. Thank you. Thank you for confirming. Thank you. Public comment on this item is now closed and like to move to continue this to the call of the chair. On the motion to continue the item to the call of the chair, Vice Chair Chan, aye. Chan I, Member Mandelman, Mandelman I, Chair Preston. Aye. Preston I, there are three ayes. Thank you, colleagues. Thank you, the motion uh, passes and Madam Clerk, please call uh, item two. 
Item number two is a resolution urging the mayor's office and Department of Public Health to ensure no gap in services for the hundreds of people served daily by the Tenderloin Service Center. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001. When prompted, enter meeting ID 2493-481-7808, then pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you, Madam Clerk. So, uh, colleagues, I introduced this uh, resolution last month um, urging the Mayor's Office and Department of Public Health uh, to ensure that replacement services are available for the hundreds of visitors that use the Tenderloin Center daily. Um, they, this is a resolution that I was hoping I would not have to introduce um, and only did so after our office could not get uh, any meaningful commitments uh, from the administration around uh, replacement of the Tenderloin Center and its services. Um, we reach, have reached out to the mayor's office, uh, met with Department of Public Health uh, several times, um, and have asked for details and, and commitments uh, in writing and uh, have not received those to date. So uh, since it opened less than a year ago, the Tenderloin Center has seen, I believe it is now at 112,000 visits um, by people seeking basic dignity services, uh, safe space, harm reduction, um, connections to housing, medical and behavioral health services. Um, and as of uh, the most recent data we have, the Tenderloin Center has reversed uh, 280 uh, overdoses, um, and that which is which is about an average of an overdose um, being reversed every day that the Tenderloin Center has been operating. Uh, the prospect of this center closing with no replacement in sight is untenable for the neighborhood and for uh, every person who utilizes the services offered there. Um, I, I will say at this point that I am extremely frustrated uh, and a bit angry that as of today, it appears uh, from everything we know that the plan is simply to shut down the Tenderloin Center without lining up timely replacement services or ensuring that any organizations uh, receiving referrals have the capacity to take on a significant increase uh, in the number of clients, uh, placing countless people at risk of being referred to services that aren't available to them or of getting no help uh, whatsoever. And I, I, I don't say this lightly, but I think the lack of replacement services, if that's where we end up, uh, will place uh, more people at significant risk of overdosing and potentially dying uh, on our streets, uh, which is the last thing any of us want. So I hope things have changed. I mean, things can change quickly. I've seen them change quickly, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse in this city. Uh, I am hoping we will hear a different plan today. Um, but as I said, to date, uh, there's been a lack of any plan communicated to our office or the public other than the closure of the center, and it's deeply concerning. Um, I, I want to recognize and thank Dr. Cunnins and her team um, for their work. Um, I think we made significant progress in the overdose prevention plan um, that that uh, came about, and, um, and, and I think, I, I will say that I think that Dr. Cunnins and her team 
fully understand and appreciate how important this, this work is as we try to address the overdose crisis. And I think we've made big strides recently to formulate the plan that I, that I referenced um, on overdoses, one that is, was written by Department of Public Health, uh, signed off on by the mayor, um, with, I believe, very broad buy-in from advocates and, uh, and certainly our office. Um, and uh, I think there are positive commitments and goals that are set in there. But what is uh, notably absent in the overdose prevention plan and the presentation of it and all the discussions is a commitment around what replaces the services um, at the Tenderloin Center. Um, and so my hope is, uh, today in, in this hearing on our resolution and, and the board's uh, anticipated action on the resolution should it be forwarded uh, from this committee uh, will help us get more clarity on the Tenderloin Center closure plan, how we can make sure that folks uh, who rely on the center have somewhere to go when it closes. Um, and, and I wanna note that the administration was able to open the Tenderloin Center, it was at the time known as the Linkage Center, within, I think it was less than a month of, of announcing its intention to open it. Um, so we have over a month before the Tenderloin Center uh, is scheduled to close. So I've got to say, you know, I hear, encounter a lot of people who say well, the window's closed and it's too late. It's not actually. And uh, if we have the commitment to do it, like, let's get it done. Uh, let's open a new hub that will serve the people who use the Tenderloin Center. If we cannot do that, you know, by December 4th, when the services are scheduled to end, let's talk about a short extension of that time uh, to the point when we have something else up and running uh, for people to transition to. I, I, I think this is an area, I think there are a lot of things that divide us as political leaders in the city. I actually think that the overdose prevention plan was a great example of the areas of common ground and frankly of doing what as a city we did very well, especially early on in the COVID um, pandemic where, where we let public health officials take the lead, make the recommendations. We let health advocates take the lead and make the recommendations um, and then political leaders figured out how to get it done and support those efforts. That's what we should be doing with our overdose crisis. I believe that's what's reflected in the overdose prevention plan, but it is not what's reflected in our plans around the Tenderloin Center, at least not yet. So um, I very much appreciate all the work that went into the overdose prevention plan. I appreciate the broad support. I think we're at over 50 organizations who have sent us a letter uh, supporting this resolution. Um, and urging no gap in services. I wanna thank my early co-sponsors, Vice Chair Chan uh, and Supervisor Ronan, as well as uh, President Walton uh, and, and Supervisor Peskin for their support of the resolution. And I hope others will, will join as well. Um, and with that, I will uh, turn it over to Dr. Uh, Cunnins, who's here today on behalf of uh, Department of Public Health. Uh, and I believe the mayor's office represented by Tom Paulino is uh, available for questions, I believe, on uh, appearing remotely. Dr. Cunnins, welcome. Hopefully you have big news to break in this moment that will completely change my uh, perspective on this issue. Good morning. <laughs> uh, good morning. Thank you, uh, Chair Preston, Vice Chair Chen, Supervisor Mandelman. Thank you for calling us together today. And <clears throat> I'm Dr. Hillary Cunnins, Director of Behavioral Health Services and Mental Health SF for the Department of Public Health. I'm joined today by my colleague, Ms. Krista 
Gaeta, who is the director of the Tenderloin Response for DPH and will be uh, presenting and answering uh, your questions uh, today. We do have a brief slideshow, which is uh, which you can see up before you. Um, uh, next slide. I, I'm realizing I, uh, I'm going to turn away just to be able to read the slides. Um, as, as you remarked, um, we opened the Tenderloin Center on January 18th, 2022. I do want to reflect we did do that rapidly and what enabled us to do it with that rapidity as part, was as part of the emergency order and the emergency order uh, initiative in partnership with our colleagues from really across the city, importantly, Department of Emergency Management, uh, HSH, HSA, and DPW. Uh, DPH took over the Tenderloin Center as of uh, July 1st, but I really do want to note this was part of a larger strategy uh, in a multi-pronged plan to stabilize the neighborhood with the goals of reducing uh, overdose deaths, uh, as well as making other contribu important contributions to people's health. As you remark, the Tenderloin Center is serving approximately 400 people per day, seven days a week at 1170 Market, uh, which is in UN Plaza. Next slide. So we wanted to share with you some of our key, what we believe to be the key impacts and services. You cited some, this is actually data from last week. Um, we have placed approximately 1,000 individuals or connected them with shelter and 211 connected with permanent housing. Uh, approximately 637 people have completed enrollments into CalFresh, Medi-Cal, and CAP. We have provided more than 8,000 showers, more than 3,000 loads of laundry, over 25,000 on-site behavioral health, physical health, and social service connections. And as you remark, uh, 280 overdoses have been reversed. What's on the slide is last week's data. More than 300 individuals have been connected with specialty behavioral health services. Next slide. As you also already remarked, and really thanks to uh, a fantastic team at DPH, as well as collaborations across uh, the city with other city agencies, uh, we, um, and with input, I should say, from many uh, community members and organizations, we issued a four-point comprehensive plan to address the crisis of overdose deaths you can see the four points on the slide in front of you, increasing access and availability to a continuum of substance use services, strengthening community engagement and support for people at high risk of overdose, implement a whole city approach to overdose, and as we previously discussed, meaning really working across our colleague agencies and with every sector who has the potential to touch and reduce the risk of overdose of people they may be serving, and then finally increase our ability to track the epidemic, monitor change, and adjust programming as needed. Next slide. 
The other, um, the other uh, slide, which I have just previously shown uh, in our prior treatment on demand hearing, just the conceptual framework for what we are uh, representing and seeing ourselves doing at the Tenderloin Center. Um, we see this as part of an important continuum of services we are aiming to offer people. In this slide, what you see from left to right is services on the left are aiming to serve people who might be as the stage of change in health behavior theory suggests, pre-contemplative, people who are not necessarily ready in the moment to make a change in terms of their substance use or other health uh, conditions. We are aiming to match services to that group in order to engage people in that level of care, that part of the continuum, aiming to move them along all the way to the right side of that slide where you see formal treatment services, whether they are residential, outpatient, medication treatment, and including, importantly, other supportive living environments like sober living. These are aiming at folks who are either making changes uh, or, or action phase of their behavior change or in the maintenance phase of their behavior change, meaning they have made significant changes and are looking to maintain um, their abstinence or sobriety or other health behavior changes that they are seeking to continue. Next slide. Um, and the services at the TLC are just one part of what we believe to be the multi-pronged uh, approach we are taking to reduce overdose and public drug use. Many of these changes have been made under the uh, rubric of Mental Health SF, as you know, the legislated framework to improve our behavioral health system. And you can see on the slide the, the elements of the progress we have made and that many of you have heard about already. We have an opened more than 250 residential care and treatment slots, most recently including Soma Rise, which is a 24-7 drug sobering center. We have expanded hours of access uh, at our behavioral health access center where people can come in seeking help, getting assessed. We have also expanded hours at our office-based buprenorphine induction clinic where people can come in and, and get treatment initiated uh, using buprenorphine and at our BART Market, uh, Market Street site, which is a contracted service for an opioid treatment program offering both methadone, buprenorphine, and also counseling. Additional progress, as you are aware, we have established the street crisis response teams, the street overdose response teams, Additionally, we are expanding our access uh, and availability of contingency management, which is a uh, treatment intervention specifically with science behind it to reduce, um, uh, support people with stimulant use disorders, that is uh, methamphetamine or cocaine. Finally, I'll just mention that the Behavioral Health Pharmacy has also expanded its hours and additionally um, is able to deliver medications, uh, specifically buprenorphine, which uh, the idea here is to help people continue to receive their medication. We know, and I should just comment at the top, that people who are um, with an opioid use disorder who are receiving medication-assisted treatment with buprenorphine or methadone are at reduced risk of overdose, 
as well as achieving lower levels of drug use, including abstinence from all illicit drugs. And this form of treatment has the best data around retention in care and reduction in these important health outcomes, particularly mentioning overdose. Next slide. I also want to call attention to our uh, ambitious goals uh, that we released in our overdose plan. In one to two years, we are aiming to establish at least two wellness homes, hubs sorry, that co-locate needed services and improve the health of people who use drugs. We are aiming to open 70 additional residential step-down beds. These are um, residential sites for people leaving residential treatment for substance use disorder where they can stay, continue to stabilize, receive outpatient substance use disorder treatment while living in a supported uh, place. We are aiming to open 40 new beds for people, women with dual diagnoses, serving women of the Bayview. This was a recommendation from our uh, Prop C committee, which we are in the process of implementing. We are also aiming to increase the number of people receiving medications for addiction treatment by 30%, by 20% within one to two years, increase the number of programs offering contingency management from three to five. My reading is blocked by the... Uh, the words, we are also aiming to increase our, thank you, distribution of naloxone from 47 to 75,000 kits annually. Naloxone is an important part of our plan to get this emergency reversal medicine into the hands of people who might be in the position to witness an overdose and respond and save a life. And then finally, we, want, we are aiming to increase naloxone availability in supportive housing facilities in the city, working with our colleagues from HSH. Next slide. Part, a key part of our overdose prevention plan is to establish wellness hubs, which we are defining and describing here as neighborhood-based programs tailored to meet and improve the health of people who use drugs with a specific focus on preventing overdose deaths. Services will include overdose prevention, access to treatment, linkage to shelter and benefits. Our goal is to open at least two wellness hubs within the next year in neighborhoods disproportionately affected uh, by the epidemic. And as we have discussed previously, any new site, proposed site will include community engagement including required uh, Prop I notifications. Next slide. Yeah. Um, so as far as our next steps, um, we appreciate very much, uh, Chair Preston, you're raising the important concerns and the value of the services we have been able to provide to people at the TLC. We are continuing to aggressively explore every option we can to be able to um, transition those services. This, um, in addition, we have also, uh, in, or in parallel, de are developing, have developed a transition plan 
uh, both pr preceding any possible closure and following the closure in order to maintain uh, continuity of services. The other uh, ne important next step, we just, as you know, issued the overdose plan uh, within the last few weeks, and we are aiming to begin and have already uh, to implement the important elements of that plan. I'm ha I think that's the last slide, and I am happy to take questions along with my colleague, Ms. Gaeta. Thank you, Director Cunnins, and um, I believe uh, Mr. Paulino is on the line available for questions. I don't know if you had any uh, presentation or anything that you wanted to add from the mayor's office. Uh, floor is yours, Mr. Paulino, if you would like to say anything. Thank you, Chair Preston. No, uh, no presentation, but available for questions for you. Thank you. Uh, I do have some questions. So, um, the goal. I wanted to get a little more specific around the goals. So you've you've stated the goal of opening two wellness hubs in the next year, prioritizing impacted neighborhoods as described. Um, the overdose prevention plan commits to opening one wellness hub this calendar year. A little less clear in year two. I think it's one or more additional ones next year. So if we can take that piece by piece. So the commitment remain to opening a wellness hub this calendar year? Um, so we are, um, we are working to adhere to that commitment. We, um, we are considering uh, site or sites and are working through what our last, um, our sort of late logistics and feasibility around about establishing the particular site. We, um, we are committed to also doing uh, community engagement um, and rolling out a, f a first site, I will say as expeditiously as possible, and I, am, I remain hopeful that it will be this calendar year. Can you confirm what I believe to be the case, that that site is not in the Tenderloin Civic Center or the immediate area where the, the Tenderloin Center is currently operating? Um, I, will sh I will share that we have had challenges in locating a new Tenderloin site. Um, there are many, as, as, you, um, as you and I had discussed, needs for that we see as need, physical needs of a potential any potential site including uh, outdoor space enough space for folks to come in and and rest and and yeah, gain if i could just because we'll get to the tenderloin side i just want to get clear sure. for the public that you remain hopeful that you can that this city can fulfill the commitment to get this first wellness hub up and running by the end of the calendar year, understanding there's community engagement, there's an announcement whenever that comes uh, to get on track. I just want to get clear for the public that, that 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 optimism around opening the first wellness hub, what we are talking about, uh, even though you're not prepared to announce a location at this point, I think it is my understanding that that is not 
in the Tenderloin Civic Center or immediate vicinity of the, of the current TL Center. I just want to get that clear before we start talking about what may come after. That site is not in the immediate area of the Tenderloin Center and is not a replacement for the Tenderloin Center. Is that right? Yes. Thank you. And, then, and so then, then you were anticipating the next <laughs> question, okay, which is, so once, well, l let me ask, do you, do you, I, I understand you're not prepared to announce uh, the, the site, the 2022 site um, at this time, but do you have a estimate as to when we can expect to hear uh, from DPH uh, the location of that site? Um, s soon, I know that is not precise. Um, I think we are making sure that um, what we intend to offer at the site is feasible given physical constraints and we would be, and we don't want it to uh, not be feasible before announcing. Uh, and, and I would also again reiterate announcing with the intent of uh, speaking with community members uh, to, so that we can get feedback, understand potential um, hopes for the site and, and, and get feedback about how we might organize the site. Thank you, and I certainly support the engagement. I think one of the frustrating things from my perspective is that by waiting Till the last minute on these things, we are virtually guaranteeing the sort of community reaction and fight over these things that I don't think would exist at the same level were we to be more open uh, with, our, with our process, our locations, and really do more meaningful engagement. That certainly was the case with the Tenderloin Center, where a lot of folks who I think otherwise would have embraced and worked together on it uh, instead learned about it in the San Francisco Chronicle the day it opened, right? Or, or was the day it was announced. Um, so, so I would just, that's more a comment than a question, but just encourage that, that that announcement, especially if we're trying to be on track to open by the end of the year, the first wellness hub, that that announcement be made as soon as possible so we can all work together on that uh, engagement and on dispelling a lot of the, the myths and misinformation that often circulates about what, uh, what services are provided at these sites. I appreciate the comment very much. I, I think the, uh, again, we, the TLC was opened extremely quickly um, and under the condition of an emergency order. And, and this is uh, not the condition that we are, would be opening cu current or future wellness hubs. Thank you. The, the future site, if, a future, I guess, second, well, let me ask, will the second wellness hub that is open be, a, be one that is in the Tenderloin or Civic Center area and can actually serve a lot of the same people uh, that are using the Tenderloin Center now? We, um, we don't, I mean, I'll say this again, is we don't yet have an identified site. We, um, I'll ask you and really any potential listeners for, for assistance in helping to identify a site. As you know, in San Francisco, real estate is often a cha the challenge or a major challenge in, uh, in establishing services. Um, we are looking, seeking a site that would have out potential for outdoor space, 
I think I started to say this indoor space where people can come in and find resp or respite, hygiene, um, and individual rooms where people similar to at the TLC can meet privately with providers to get linked into further services or, or healthcare. Is there a commitment to opening a replacement site for the Tenderloin Center in that general area in the, well, let me ask it differently because there have been different <laughs> representations made that are not inconsistent but that need clarification. I believe what was said to the, the, in the planning commission memo uh, from DPH was that, that a site will be open by the end of the year, and not, not meaning this year, right? Um, in, to, in the Tenderloin area, and then that was further um, clarified at uh, the, uh, a call with many advocates uh, and Tenderloin community members there that what was meant by that was end of the fiscal year. So I, I'm trying to pinpoint, uh, you know, we can, we can discuss and we'll get the mayor's office perspective too on the timing in relation to the closure of the Tenderloin Center. But there's also just even that issue aside, getting some clarity on even if there were not that pressure, what timeline we're working under. So are, are we talking about a Tenderloin or, or, or Civic Center wellness hub by June 30th, 2023? or are we talking about it by the end of the calendar year 2023? What, what is the commitment there? Um, I will just share my, the public, I think what is a common sense public health perspective, which is we are wanting this to happen as soon as possible. We are, um, to, prior to the fiscal year would be you know, in, in, that, in that time frame and there are I, pragmatic logistical challenges around site identification that we are seeking to resolve. And that, that is a, I would say, central um, reason why we could not achieve that goal. And so if, if, if our office identified a site tomorrow that met your specifications, we would then be on track to open, this would be opened I would soon? I would just, I would say yes, and I'd want to bring that back to check with our um, ability to contract with a not-for-profit who could run the site uh, and our ability to establish that contract. But I think that is our hope, and I hope you can identify a site tomorrow. Well, I'm, I'm not saying we can. I'm, I, I will say it's, it's news to our office if the administration's position is now that the, that the only barrier here, it's not the political will, it's not many other issues, it's just identifying a site, if that's the only barrier, you know, we can work on that, right? We, and I, I would like to hear from the mayor's office, Mr. Paulino, if, that's, if, if that is your view as well, that the, that the only obstacle to us opening and activating a uh, wellness hub uh, in the Tenderloin or Civic Center area right now uh, is, is the availability of a site. Thank you for the question, Chair Preston. I, I can't speak to the specifics around all of the um, uh, 
technical considerations that Director Cunnins had uh, a bit spoken to with regards to identifying the site. But our office would absolutely be happy to collaborate with your office in identifying potential sites. Um, like I said, uh, Director Cunnins and DPH would have a little bit more information into the specifics that would go into uh, the requirements for a potential site, but absolutely happy to, to collaborate with your office and your staff. Thank you, Mr. Paulino. Let me follow up beyond just uh, your offer to collaborate, which is well received, and I look forward to, to collaborating. We will get on the record in a minute, I hope, from uh, our Director uh, of Behavioral Health here, uh, some more details about what a site would need to look like to be usable for a wellness hub in or around the Tenderloin. My question is, uh, if somebody watching this hearing uh, should emerge in, in you know, the days that follow with a site that meets those specifications, do we have a commitment from the mayor's office and Department of Public Health to move forward uh, on an expedited basis and open a wellness hub uh, in, in the Tenderloin or Service Center area? I mean, from, from our office and as DPH had set out a couple of months ago that they had put together this plan for over months to identify potential sites. Um, as far as uh, the word expedited, I'm not sure exactly kind of what you mean insofar as that, but it, but the goal of, uh, of uh, the winding down of the services specifically at the Tenderloin Linkage Center was always to identify uh, the opportunities for those services to continue to make sure that there is not a gap in those services. Thank you, we certainly share that goal. So uh, Mr. Paulino, on behalf of the mayor's office, why is the site scheduled to close and cease uh, delivering services on December 4th when there is no replacement site activated? Well, from the beginning, uh, Chair Preston, this was always a temporary uh, 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 center. Um, and as I mentioned, as far as what DPH had uh, announced a couple of months ago, and so far as uh, developing a plan to uh, ensure that those services that the Tenderloin Linkage Center provides do not uh, end with the winding down of the actual Tenderloin Center itself. Um, is what DPH has been doing over the past couple of months is, uh, is uh, identifying potential sites, ensuring that community partners would be available to uh, partner with to make sure that those services get to, to those individuals, um, but that from the beginning, the site was, was, was intended to be temporary. I, I, and let me be clear, I don't think anyone's arguing for the Tenderloin Center to be permanent in that location. I think there are very different views reflected in this resolution regarding whether to close it when no new site has been, has been activated. So I, 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 Mr. Paulino, if, if you could just address that timing issue, like why, why has, the mayor has not, to my knowledge, I, approached the board about working together to extend uh, the, the time of the Tenderloin Center until a new uh, site is opened, um, and in fact has done the opposite and said there won't be a new site by that time and we are closing on that date. Um, so that, that's why if we all share the goal of making sure there isn't a gap in services, why is there not a commitment to keeping the Tenderloin Center open until the replacement is open? Um, I will, Chair President, I think the, uh, the logic behind the development of the plan for 
alternatives to the the center itself was to to learn the lessons from uh, the Tenderloin Linkage Center's operation over the last year, um, and whether it's um, uh, you know. Uh, better coordination and partnership with community providers um, or uh, identif identifying of multiple sites, uh, various sites, excuse me, from, from the Tenderloin Linkage Center. I think that's been the process that DPH has been undertaking over the past couple months. And to Director Cunnins' point um, earlier, as far as any announcements forthcoming that uh, uh, DPH may be announcing within um, uh, within the coming months, I think it speak to, their, to the work that has happened over the past couple of months uh, to make sure that there are no gaps in those services. What is the timeline that the mayor's office is committing to for a wellness hub in or near the Tenderloin? Um, I, I can't speak to any particular time commitment um, as far as a hard date. Um, but like I said, I think that, you know, we share the same goals, making sure that there are no lapse in services here. And that is what we, the administration continues to support DPH to make sure that that does not happen. Or excuse me, that that does happen. And Director Cunnins, what is the process once a site is identified uh, in terms of uh, there's Prop I notification, there's, uh, I don't know if there's an RFP regarding uh, the services on site. Can, uh, can you describe that process and if everyone were working as quickly as possible, uh, how, how much time that would take? Um, I may ask uh, for some for an assist from uh, Ms. Gaeta for this, but the initial process is to identify a site. We would need to assess the site to see if there's any needed renovation, construction, internal changes. Um, we would then, depending on the circumstances with advice from our DPH uh, business and contracting office, would be advised about what our the ways we could procure uh, the, serv the service provider there. Um, one way forward could be an RFP, um, and some of the timelines would be, as I understand it, dependent on the particular circumstances and, and ways we might be able to procure the service. One, one thing I will say is that one, lesson learned from the TLC is, um, is that the site, and thanks to our many providers who helped run the site and were invaluable to the great number of services we we're able to offer, it also um, made some of the uh, procurement, contracting, and so forth uh, cha challenged the timeline. And so one of the lessons learned uh, both from a uh, procurement point of view and also an operations point of view, is having a lead uh, single provider would be a faster and easier way to operate the site. Thank you. Um, so can you describe the, um, and I don't know if this is for Ms. Uh, Ms. Gaeta or, or, or yourself, but so what, it, what is the plan currently for DPH if, if there is not an extension of the Tenderloin Center, if services are terminated effective December 4th, if there is no replacement hub in anywhere near the area, what's the plan for the approximately 400 people per day who are visiting that site for help? Let me reiterate, and then I will turn us uh, turn you over to Ms. Gaeta, is that we are still 
um, pushing as hard as we can uh, and exploring every option to um, eliminate or reduce any potential gap. And as I indicated, we are at the same time hard at work getting ready for a potential transition plan. And I'll ask Ms. Gator so to help bef there. Before Ms. Gator addresses I, I mean, we worked closely together on a detailed plan. DPH knows what a plan looks like and knows how to put together a plan to actually succeed. That's what we saw, in the, I think, in the overdose prevention plan. Like, we don't have anything like that. We are a month out. And, and if, Ms. Gator, if you want to address this, I, I, I mean, what are, who's going to be on the ground come December 5th? What organizations in and around the Tenderloin have been, have there been discussions with and hopefully agreements signed around and, and, and knowledge of their capacity to take up to 400 more people for various different services? And can they serve those people, right? Have there been requests for additional funding to do that? How are people gonna physically get from the center to those places, right? I mean, and I'm not telling you anything, I mean, Department of Public Health knows how to create a plan. I haven't seen one. The, 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 all due respect, I mean, the, the, the planning part of this in terms of what's been presented to us is very vague. So I, I would either, either Director Cunnins or, or Ms. Gata, if you, can, can you tell us in more detail if there's no extension of the Tenderloin Center and there's no replacement site, what are we looking at from December 5th on? Yeah, yeah, thanks for that question. It's very important. It's something that we are thinking a lot about at the Tenderloin Center. So I happen to uh, be part of the management structure there and work with the staff uh, to operate the site every day. But then we have been thinking about various scenarios. Um, and one of those scenarios is that we do close on December 4th. So here are a couple of the things that we're doing. Uh, we have put together an internal service transition team, um, and what we're really fortunate is we have HSH at the table, HSA at the table, we have Code Tenderloin, we have Harm Reduction Therapy Center, we have Health Right 360. These are all folks who are providing services on the site. There's a group of staff right now identifying clients who are in a housing process. So they are working with the coordinated entry providers there and they are, they are getting assessed and maybe being placed into housing. We are, doing, we are figuring out who those folks are and making sure that if they don't get placed before the Tenderloin Center closes, we are, we are transitioning them with a warm handoff to, the, to another access point. Folks who are in a GA, Medi-Cal, or CalFresh process, we are working to identify all of them and if they are not completed with their enrollments, we are going to be helping them with a warm handoff to the service centers. We are providing hundreds of um, therapy sessions for me uh, mental health and uh, substance use with Harm Reduction Therapy Center. We are working with those clinicians to make sure that those cl clients are transitioned to another site that HRTC um, it works at. And then we are also trying to identify our folks who are most at risk to have a continuity plan for them. So who are the folks that are most vulnerable? So we will try to do that throughout this month if we indeed close um, so that we can make sure that those who with the most needs are transitioned to other services and in some cases moving with somebody that they're already working with at the center. On December 5th, we are developing a robust plan with all those same folks. We will be on site, including the Office of Overdose Prevention, so that's DPH staff. We will have Narcan on site. We will be monitoring and re reversing overdoses if we need to. We will be there doing wayfinding and navigating to other services. Um, so thinking about the services that folks are accessing on our site, so that's meals or showers or just safe 
place to be, and we will be providing alternatives. Um, so we'll be walking folks over to meal places, we'll be walking folks over to Soma Rise and other, other places so that they're not just abandoned on December 5th, but we'll be there for several weeks doing that, that wayfinding. Thank you. I, um, have there been the, the types of contacts I was referring to with other providers in the Tenderloin to assess their capacity to take these handoffs, uh, what their needs are, if they can do that within existing budget or will be having additional requests? I think that's a next step for us. Right now, we have been working with the folks that we know that we can transition and we know there's some capacity, um, but we do plan to do more community outreach in the coming coming week or so. And there are some services that are provided at the Tenderloin Center that you cannot hand off, right? That, that there's nowhere point, to send people. most um, services are offered somewhere else. But not all. Not in, all. In, in particular, most of the overdose prevention work. Yes. I, I, you know, I will say it, it is, uh, we are, we are often not talking uh, to or, or at the people who are uh, driving some of the problems in these hearings. So I, I want to recognize the work, your work at the Tenderloin Center and the frankly impossible position that the Department of Public Health, the nonprofits who are working, who, some of whom you mentioned, HealthRight, uh, 360, Code Tenderloin, uh, and others, um, are providing on site the, I am not a public health professional. I have many in my family and extended family. The idea that the plan here is basically after you've built up goodwill for 10 months, uh, that somehow in a few weeks, you're gonna effectively transition people who are in the middle of that trust building and you know, you're gonna do that successfully with this entire you know, population of folks, it, it seems unrealistic to say the least, and the uncertainties that everyone's operating under uh, are unnecessary. And were there a clear commitment, and I'll ask the mayor's office, but were there a clear commitment to, to extend the center and or get a site up and running, um, you wouldn't have to be doing all that work. It's just, it's just uh, remarkable to me the amount of sort of everyone chasing their tail that, that is required here instead of being able to focus on the substantive work that everyone is doing at the Tenderloin Center, saving lives and figuring out how to get more people in, that we are instead having this level of uncertainty just a month before the potential closure. Um, but but let, me, let me ask this, and, and, and thank you um, for your, you know, your presentation on that, but one of the, the Director Cunnins, you referred to one of the reasons we can move so quickly last time is we had a declaration of a state of emergency that allowed us to do this on an expedited basis. I, I wanted to, like that emergency hasn't gone away, illegally it has. I understand the declaration of state of emergency has gone. But the conditions in terms of overdoses giving rise to that emergency are not significantly different today than they were at that time, right? Um, I think the one new piece of information we have is that overdose deaths declined 
as we recently reported by about 10% in 2021 compared to 2020. That said, the numbers of overdoses in San Francisco still remain at epidemic levels. Right, we're still absolutely at crisis level and we will celebrate any reduction we have, every, every individual life, but, but to Mr. Paulino for, for the mayor's office, if, if, part of the, if the part of the barrier to moving quickly here is that we don't have a state of emergency, why, is, why do we not just have a new declaration of state of emergency? Like, like what is different today than was different last December when the mayor determined that the circumstances warranted a, a, a proclamation of emergency and the ability to move more quickly forward. Thank you for the question, Chair President. I, um, well, I can't speak to if there would be another uh, uh, declaration um, coming down, uh, coming down the pike. I can't say that. Uh, the declaration from last year, uh, as Director Cunnins has mentioned, and as, as the board knows, was essentially expedited the ability for us to uh, procure the space, to, uh, to staff the space, and to make sure those services uh, came up as quickly as possible. But as I, as I mentioned earlier, the past couple of months, DPH has been spent, uh, has been spending the time to identify uh, alternate sites, alternate um, uh, uh, ways in which we can make sure those services to those communities are delivered. Um, so insofar as needing a new uh, declaration uh, in order to either expedite uh, processes here, again, I can't necessarily speak to it, but insofar as the planning that has gone in to make sure that there are alternates to the Tenderloin Linkage Center uh, following the winding down of those services, that's what the past couple of months have been spent doing. And Mr. Paulino, given that what we're hearing is there's not going to be an alternative in place by the time of closure, um, what is the mayor's office position regarding uh, short-term extension of the services provided at the Tenderloin Center so that all of our hardworking folks at the Department of Public Health and our uh, healthcare providers and others can focus on the task of delivering care, not wind, prematurely winding down services when they uh, or have uh, no replacement option. What, what's the mayor's position on, expending, on extending the TL Center uh, operations beyond the December date? Uh, well, I, I don't want to put words in Director Cunnings' mouth, and I don't know if she had she had, had mentioned this, but there, the um, uh, the fact that there. The fact that there won't be a site identified by the closure of or the proposed closure of the center, I don't think is entirely accurate. I think she uh, ha had outlined that they are working and in the process of identifying alternate sites so that by the closure there is uh, are, or are alternative sites uh, identified to be able to continue those services. Um, but as far as to your question around extending, um, uh, what was the question around extending well, let, 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 the, the you know, linkage center itself? Let's get back to my question after we clarify what you just said, because what you just said is very different from what I'm hearing from the Department of Public Health. I don't think that our Department of Public Health is representing that they will be announcing a wellness hub, the first one, that will in any way be a replacement for the services provided at the Tenderloin Center. That seems to be what you are saying, Mr. Paulino. It does not seem to be what I'm hearing from Department of Public Health. And I think we have to understand the whole point of these wellness hubs in the overdose prevention plan and decentralizing them is an understanding these are very localized. They serve people in a very localized community. And, and so let, let's get clear on that. And 
before, before we answer the other question, there will not be a wellness hub announced that will be activated by the end of this calendar year as a replacement for the Tenderloin Center and the folks served there, right? I just want to be clear, because what I'm hearing from, from Mr. Paulino is, is trying to conflate the other center somewhere else, that, and Wellness Hub, that you may be announcing with this closure. Those are two separate things, right? Yeah, yeah and well, I apologize first, for any. It, it's first, I just want to make sure first that director, that I'm not misstating what Director Cunnins has been saying. Then we'll go back to you, Mr. Polino. Yeah, you are not misstating um, the well, the, what we believe is a path with a, with a first wellness hub. I do want to just offer and, um, we are still aggressively looking for sites in the Tenderloin and not letting up there. Absolutely, and I appreciate that. But there's two different issues. There's finding a site in the Tenderloin Civic Center area which can serve as a replacement uh, to some of the services offered at the Tenderloin Center. And then there is the imminent announcement of a wellness hub somewhere else that is not seen by the Department of Public Health as a replacement for the services at the Tenderloin Center, right? Correct. Thank you. So, Mr. Paulino, let it, 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 I hope that clarifies. Let me know if the mayor's office has a different perspective on that. But there will not be, unless things change dramatically right now, there will not be a wellness hub opened that is a replacement for the Tenderloin Center. And my question is, given that, if that's what we are stuck with right now, is the mayor's office willing to extend services at the, the Tenderloin Center beyond the planned closure date in December? Thank you for the, for the follow-up question, and I apologize for any confusion my remarks might have added there to, uh, to Director Cunnings's. As I, I personally cannot speak to, uh, to that, uh, to your question, uh, Chair Preston, insofar as a commitment to extending that, but I will absolutely take that back to my colleagues here for, for consideration and to sync up with your staff afterwards. Thank you. Do you agree that if it's not extended and there's no replacement wellness hub that there will be a gap in services? Was that question to me? Yes. Okay, so uh, I, I can't necessarily speak to the operations of the services provided. I would have to defer to the folks at, at, at DPH insofar as the different community members that they work with and those different systems. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to repeat what I had mentioned earlier. But again, it's our goal for, for services to not, uh, to not lapse and for them to continue. Well, there's a very easy way for that to happen, which is you don't terminate the services. Um, Vice Chair Chan. Thank you, Chair Preston. This is just a side note to begin with. Mr. Provolino, you're obviously in City Hall. I don't understand why you're not inside a chamber to answer questions because otherwise there will be like less confusion between whether this is a question posed to you or <laughs> Dr. Kunis or, you know, so I, I first and foremost, I, I just want to make that clear that I, I, I think that you should be inside a chamber if you are in person in City Hall and answering questions. Um, and and I, I think that this is the question that I have, and, and it's 
I, I think, Chair Preston, thank you so much, because I think you already pointed out, it's very clear to us, and I think it's unfortunate for uh, it, its governance uh, by press releases and press announcements that we, we could have done this a year ago and, and have a really uh, an honest conversation about how to best address um, the issues of drug overdose and, and to truly be committed to either the approach and the resources that is actually the most beneficial to most vulnerable population in San Francisco. And that it is unfortunate that we're here and, be, and, and I agree with Chair Preston. Thank you so much for all the work that you've been doing. I am so sorry that you're stuck in the rock and the hard place between you know political stunt and the, actually the real work that you need to do and try to like be adapted and be flexible as much as you can. Um, and so I, I, th I think that is first, and foremost, I want to express that thanks to you and that unfortunately the mayor's office can't even be here in person to address and, and answer the questions that they are responsible for. Um, I, I think though uh, the, the question I want to go back to is that um, help me understand from your expertise. You know, the, it seems like there's a two different approach to address this problem and one is you know, originally that, you know, as proposed last year as a public health emergency, it, it, the way that it, it, it posed to this body, to the Board of Supervisors, which I voted in support of, it is that I was told and I was informed, this is a crisis, a crisis that I think for decades now, but, but nonetheless, I, I actually recognize the seriousness of it and, and the, you know, that, the, that we do need to invest resources and, you know, support for the area. Therefore, I voted in support. But the approach that at that time was we need a centralized space. We need a space that have all like concentrated resources and services in one spot so everyone know where to go. And it's in proximity for the people that they need so we lower the barriers for services. Now suddenly, not suddenly, but, but a year later, now we say, hey, we, we're gonna do these wellness centers in different, in, in different hubs and different neighborhoods. Um, I, I think I, what I'm seeking for is some answers to help me understand the differences between the two approach and which one is the most beneficial because I believe that we're gonna go, unlike we do, this body does not govern by press releases. We, we want to understand what is the best approach and, and with that we want to support and invest resources, be it you know funding and, and however way we can to the Department of Public Health to say how do we address this problem? Uh, thanks, Vice Chair Chan, for that question. Um, <clears throat> let me um, just go back to the top about the the duration of the crisis. I, I do want to say that nationally, the overdose crisis has been going on for more than a decade now. We were spared in San Francisco really until the late 20 teens. And so the time period here, I think, which we and others attribute to some of the very strong programming that has been in place in San Francisco really has hit us hard, primarily driven by fentanyl in the uh, 27, 2018, 2019. So I just wanna sort of acknowledge that uh, some of what we have here had and has is working. That said, I think that we learned a great deal in the, in the 10 months since we've been operating the TLC. Some of our 
um, approaches I think still stand and some approaches we would change, which is what we are proposing in the wellness hubs. An important driver is size and location um, in, in a particular neighborhood so that from the provider point of view, it can be a more intimate uh, space to get to know people, to have continuity over time, and to be able to work with both the community members and the individuals as thoughtfully as possible. I think that is a really important lesson, and that is why our uh, desire and approach for sort of a one-stop, I think as you were describing, and low barrier remains, and we learned from the TLC, if you offer things that people want, they will come and present uh, for assistance or, for use, or to use services. The smaller sites we feel and have learned are, are our best recommendation as of right now. Additionally, I mentioned this earlier, is having a single provider really be managing and in charge of the specific site, allowing for um, a, a consistency of practice uh, and approach across the site. At the same time, we learned, I think, so much with our other city departments. I mentioned uh, DEM, HSH, HSA, DPW, and I think really working to set up new sites in collaboration um, with our colleague agencies in order to bring the many needed services that, that folks want to take advantage of is also a critical learning that we don't wanna, we won't give up on. This is just my last comment. I, I think that one thing that I'm learning from the Department of Public Health, you know, and, and also the learned lessons for Laguna Honda is that like while that changes is made, it, it's really hard for people to just say, we, we've been offering you some services. I think Chair Preston has mentioned that too. You're finally developing the trust and yet you just say, let's quit cold turkey and let's like not having anything at all. I, and I know that there is a plan of like, how can we transfer these services and making sure that everyone can have to be taken care of. But I, I, I think that is part of learning from Laguna Honda, transfer trauma is real when, when people actually are in need and actually they're, they're sick and they're, they, they, how can we expect them to just say, hey, it's December 5th and therefore you're not, this is not for you anymore. And, and this is just really, uh, I think just we are just re-traumatizing everyone by, by not, by, by on us not being able to provide a smooth transition and be able to make the commitment and say, hey, you know, this is where you could go now from here and on out. And that is just um, disheartening to hear. And, but again, I just want to thank you and your team for, for doing everything you can and, and just disappointed that today is November 3rd and that we have less than a month to go. And this is very, this is just, I think this actually wa is wasting our resources as a city and that we just keep, and, and that's why constituents always ask, like we have $14 billion budget, why is it not delivering results? I think that is exact, this is a really good example of how we all try to come together and problem solve. But again, it's because the lack of political will 
or different kind of political will for different agenda, and that's like where we're landing that keep wasting resources and people's time and talents. And I think that actually demoralizes the people who pour their heart and soul and time and tears in this work and to say, why? Why are we doing this and you know, garner no long-term results? So thank you, Dr. Kanes, and thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Thank you, Vice Chair Chan. Supervisor Mandelman. Um, well, I, I may be about to make uh, your, your life a little more complicated by reminding you that there are a diversity of perspectives on the Board of Supervisors, and I don't think that I uh, fully agree with my colleagues um, on this question. Um, I did vote for the Tenderloin State of Emergency. I do think that uh, the Department of Public Health and service providers have done some extraordinary work there and have learned um, some valuable things. I also have misgivings and reservations about many aspects of how the Linkage Center has rolled out and continued, um, and would like to explore a few questions with you um, now. So on that first slide, uh, as you talked, we don't have to bring it up, but you talked about uh, the, the Linkage Center being part of a strategy uh, to stabilize the neighborhood. Um, what are the metrics by which DPH thinks about neighborhood stabilization? So, um, so thanks for that question, Supervisor. Um, so I think that from a public health point of view, we are aiming to focus on uh, the health metrics. Uh, for us, a prime metric is, is overdose deaths and reduction in overdose deaths. Um, we know that that includes uh, pulling people, engaging people, as you and I and others recently discussed at the Treatment on Demand hearing, includes uh, metrics for numbers of people engaged in the continuum of behavioral health services. We also um, are, as we've stated, concerned about reducing public drug use as an additional public health metric. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would push back just a little bit. O reducing overdoses is unquestionably a, a, an important priority for San Francisco right now. Um, reducing active public drug use, uh, substance use, seems to me to move in the direction of a neighborhood stabilization metric. But I think what most San Franciscans would think needs to happen around neighborhood stabilization in the Tenderloin and Soma is that the open air drug use sales, impassable public spaces, challenges to um, residents and merchants and visitors in feeling safe needs to dissipate and ultimately go away. And um, it's, a, I mean, I, I guess we, I think we are all hoping that Interventions like a linkage center or a wellness center would help with that, but if that's not central to DPH's focus, I think that's a problem because I think that is a huge need, not just in the Tenderloin. You know, the Tenderloin is ground zero, but in in many neighborhoods. Um, so, can, um, yeah, yeah. if I may, um, sure. so I concur, and we see this as part of our responsibility along with other actors and sectors in the city. It is, as you know, as we know, complex. We have a part in this, and I know other agencies in the city also feel uh, committed to this 
and also have a part in this. And this is certainly feels extremely important to me, to my staff, and are eager, as you know, to look for all kinds of ways, new ways, which we've established, and we'll continue to look for other opportunities. Um, I'm curious about the data that you're gathering on clients coming coming in. Um, there is, uh, well, first of all, housed versus on. I, the question of whether a facility like this needs to be in the tenderloin, in my view, has something to do with whether this is improving the lives of people who live in the tenderloin or, or not. I'm curious about how many folks are housed in SROs or otherwise in the tenderloin and are using this facility versus folks who are unhoused and may or may not be from the tenderloin. Do you, have you gathered we, let me let me pass that. pass the, the mic to Ms. Gaeta. We have some of that information. Let me also just acknowledge that in the effort, um, I really value data and really value assessing the impact of services. And no, we are continuing to improve our ability to do that. I do want to say that some of the tension of operating a low threshold center is sometimes around data collection, making choices about being inviting, letting people come in, and asking a lot of, and tracking a lot of questions. That said, we do have some of this information that we'll share, that we're happy to share. Great. Um, so while I don't have the exact figures in front of me, when we opened the Tenderloin Center, um, part of the intake process was asking a few questions um, to every person who walked in the door. One of those was, what is your housing status? Um, the vast majority of folks reported being unsheltered. There were definitely folks who were housed, but vast majority unsheltered. We also asked the question, which neighborhood do you identify with? Do you hang out in? Do you live in? Um, and the vast majority of people self-reported the tenderloin. As we move forward with wellness hub planning, we are being very thoughtful about data. Again, as we mentioned before, this was an emergency setup. It was very fast, and we had to put in data systems quickly. But we get, we understand the importance of data and are looking to to improve in that area. Um, at a recent uh, GAO hearing, uh, the chair and I had a little tussle about um, uh, unhoused folks being from San Francisco, being from other places. I'm curious if you're gathering information. Sounds, I'm guessing the answer is no but whether folks using the Tenderloin Linkage Center were last housed in San Francisco or elsewhere? No, we didn't collect that particular data point. And we found the folks that were using the center that were from outside of San Francisco, very minimal, like nominal. Based on anecdotal Based on self, yeah, this is all self-reported. We're not doing investigative yeah, So it's not a question it, you're asking, but it is your impression. It is my impression that most folks are San Last were housed based in, San in San Francisco, but okay. not, we did not ask that exact question, okay. no. Great. How much is the linkage center costing us each year? So this year, so we had an annualized budget. It was about $22 million. Um, so I think the six-month budget was about like $10.6 million. Is there any evidence that the Linkage Center is reducing overdose deaths in the Tenderloin or citywide? 
Um, thank, thanks for that question. So let me share what we know and, and maybe some uh, additional questions. One is we know we have reversed about 280 overdose deaths. Some proportion of those um, would have been fatal. And so we really importantly see those as lives saved. So starting there. We did not see a decline in the city. Um, uh, overall, again, using preliminary data, we don't have final data from 2022 during these, this, this period because of finalization of cases by the, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. We also did not, it does not appear that we saw a rise in overdose deaths during this period. And so this is always a public health tension would it, and, and uncertainty, would it have been worse? Um, we don't believe that deaths have gone up, that is good, and we know we reversed a good number of overdoses in the center, saving, potentially saving that many lives. And that is good, and that is sort of, I think, the, the conclusion at this point, given current data, that I would make. Okay. Um, well, I do want to thank, I mean, I think, uh, I think there have been flaws with this model. You've identified many of them. It was too large. The not operating 24-7 and dumping uh, a large number of folks who need to use regularly, who are going to have to use before they come in the, the door the next day and are you know, going to be an impact on the immediate neighborhood is a big problem. Um, I think we've learned a very valuable thing, which is that we can do safer consumption facilities, and I am supportive of doing that. Um, I am not supportive of this resolution, however, because I have, as you at DPH know, a ton of priorities for the Department of Public Health. I think that the fact that we do not have immediate access to a safe place for someone who is in crisis or um, uh, psychotic on the streets, um, uh, that we are dumping people out of PES in our emergency rooms well before uh, they are ready to be, to be released, that we do, that our first responders are finding that they do not have places to take people who are ready, who have been revived after an overdose um, and are willing to go into treatment, but we do not have a place to take them. And the fact that we do not have enough places for people who are completing 90-day treatment programs and need a safe place to go, and the fact that when people even have a step-down facility, that, um, that we are so often returning people to SROs in the Tenderloin as their ultimate destination, where um, I would just note I did an in memoriam for uh, former Sheriff Vicki Hennessy's son, for whom that was the exact situation, after 18 months of sobriety, returned to a unit in the Tenderloin and was dead within um, two days. So. Um, I have many things that I want from DPH, and um, I would like further exploration of safer consumption facilities, um, and it is not top of my list. So, thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Mandelman. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I will just say that this is an area where I, I, I really want us to focus as much as possible on what the areas of disagreement are and what the areas of agreement are. Like, I, I think that, I don't think there's a dispute around certainly DPH, DPH's stated commitment to wellness centers as part of overdose pre 
prevention planning, the mayor's commitment to that, at least in signing off on and, and announcing that plan. Um, I believe even from Supervisor Mandelman's comments around um, some other priorities that, that and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you, it sounds like you're positive as well on the idea and probably supportive of what's in the overdose prevention plan in terms of having more safe uh, consumption and wellness uh, hubs and overdose prevention work. So, so I don't think those things are in dispute. I, I mean, I think really what's in the, the source of tension right now, uh, certainly between our office and a lot of folks in the neighborhood um, and health folks on one side, and to some extent the administration on the other, is, is the timing of when a wellness hub like, I think, I think we're actually all okay with the idea that we're going to learn some of these lessons as you've laid out, you know, around the size. I think, you know, the idea of scaling down, having more sites rather than putting, going all in on one mega site. Um, and, uh, and I haven't heard serious questions around, I think the assumption is we're going to fund that work that we need to do as part of the overdose prevention plan. So I, I don't think that it's an either or around funding other priorities or doing other things. I think it's literally just a question of, are we going to light the fire and get it done with a replacement in, in or around the tenderloin uh, in time to continue serving folks, or are we going to leave folks uh, with, with, uh, without recourse in a way that's going to be harmful and end up with people dying. Um, so I, I did have just a couple more follow-up questions before we go to public comment, and thank you to all the folks who have been patiently waiting on public comment. Um, one was just to follow up on some of the data and research questions and comments. Um, I think at our previous hearing, um, there were, on the overdose prevention plan, we were told that there was research that was underway around the Tenderloin Center. I believe uh, Dr. Krull spoke to some of his ongoing work. Um, I, that's, it's been several weeks or a month now. I'm wondering if what's the status of that? Has that work been, been completed? Are there any findings uh, that, you can, that you can share in, in, at this time? So that, that work is underway, and, we're, and we are hopeful that we'll have those findings soon and be able to share some of the lessons that, that we've learned through the evaluation as well. Okay, and any top line, in addition to what you've already said around the center, any, any additional findings that you're, you're able to represent to us today? Um, I, don't, I don't have anything at hand at present, but um, I also am eager to, to, be, to learn from that evaluation. Okay, great. Uh, thank you. We'll look forward to that. And then um, last thing before we go to public comment is on the... the finding a site. Um, I wanted to get back to that and we sort of left that, that open. I, I will start by saying I think that it's been a lack of political will, not a lack of sites, although I think finding a site still has its challenges, but we as a city can do that when we set our mind to doing it, right? There were similar challenges when we set up the Tenderloin Center. Where are you going to do it? And it was, and you find a site. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of sites right now. So, um, so that said, I'm but I'm going to take what I'm hearing at face value, uh, being the eternal optimist that I am, um, and assume it is right now the barrier is, is a site. Again, I, I, I don't know, but, uh, but let's work with that assumption for a minute. Our help as an office and as the, the new uh, 
supervisor for the Tenderloin, our help has not been sought in any way by the administration uh, in working together and collaboratively to find a site. We are happy to help in any way possible. One way that we can do that is through this hearing and through the people who I'm always surprised by how many folks do actually watch these hearings and come out of the woodwork. Uh, and that includes folks who own property or control property in the Tenderloin. So if you, we referenced this earlier, but if you could, with all the disclaimers there that of course every site's different and due diligence and all that, you don't need to do that. We, we all know that. But what are, what are you looking for in terms of size, in terms of outdoor-indoor mix, in terms of, you know, what are we talking about? Are we talking about an empty parking lot? Are we talking about a small building with a backyard? How many square feet? What's going to make the cut? And what, for those watching who know people within the Tenderloin, who own property or know someone who does, uh, if we were able to turn this around quickly, what are we looking for? going to turn us to Ms. Gaeta, who's been deeply involved with this. Yes, in addition to helping run the Tenderloin Center, I spend most of my time <laughs> planning for wellness hubs. Um, the nice thing about this model is it can be highly flexible. So at very minimum, we could do something in an empty lot. Um, that could range from like 2,000, I think ideally 4,000 square feet, where we can bring trailers on site. It's you know ideal to have electricity um, and water on site, but we can bring porta potty So there are things that we can do. Um, it's certainly not an ideal way to set up something like this. I think it's we want to set up sites that are safe and dignified for folks. And so having indoor space when it gets cold outside, when it is raining, is absolutely ideal. And so having some combination of indoor space where it can serve as a safe drop-in space for folks, where they can be comfortable, where they can engage with staff, where there's private meeting spaces, where they can um, have private conversations, engage in other planning, but with a section for some outdoor um, service area. Um, I think, in an again, I'll just say some ideals, but I would never turn anyone away with a great idea. Um, it's like 5,000 square feet of space. Um, and I think, I think we could work with that. Um, and then obviously we need um, the support of our neighbors and, and, how we, and where, we, where we put that and so that we can work collaboratively together. Thank you. And, and I just want to clarify this because it's my understanding from everyone I've talked about this. Um, from the time we started pu pushing this issue when the closure was announced. I want to be really clear, it is not a, the current budget can cover a scaled down, probably another temporary type facility um, of the type you're describing. Obviously there will always be negotiations on what's a fair market price and so forth, but, but this, is, this will, would not require a new supplemental appropriation or a new budget to get, to get something running through the end of this calendar, uh, uh, this fiscal year. Obviously, beyond yeah. this fiscal year is a budget question for the mayor and the board to consider yeah. in the next budget. But we have the funds to, to continue with a scaled down ver version in acquiring a site and Yes, and for this fiscal year, we do. Thank you. I think the other thing that I just want to put in is that if we are to lease any site, we would need cooperation from the, the landlord for the, the services we're going to provide. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, and colleagues, unless there are further questions or comments, let's go ahead and open this up for public comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment on item number two? Please line up to your right along the curtains. 
For those on the remote call-in, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. And you may approach the lectern. First speaker, please approach the lectern. Well, good fucking morning. My name is Jordan, and my pronouns are she, her, or they, them, and I live in District 5. In fact, within a really fucking short walk of the Tenderloin Center. This may be the last time I speak before this board, so I want to make this fucking count. I think the closure of this TL Center with alternatives is fucked up. It's the one part of the bullshit-ass mayor's t Tenderloin emergency declaration that I agreed with. And yet she wants more cop fucking cops to beat up our marginalized communities. In the absence of truly affordable and adequate housing for us, the Lincoln Center has provided, among other things, showers, coffee, living room, referrals, and overdose prevention. And it has been proven to work despite shithead Schellenberger trying to scale the walls and other demagogues. I fucking wish we had something like this in 2015 when I was homeless. It was hard enough for fine things, but as a manic, depressive, autistic, trans-feminine person, it was much worse. But this goes to fu bigger fucking problems in the city, which, by the way, is one of the few in California that has a strong mayor system where that Marie fucking Antoinette wannabe in room 200 can just shut down the universe neighborhood services unilaterally, or unilaterally decide not to fund programs supported by the supermajority of this board. And the board can't do shit about it, nor do they want to have any power because there are too many cowards on this board. Well, it's time for a fucking revolution. I yield my time, fuck you. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Marnie Regan from Larkin Street Youth Services. I'm also a longtime San Francisco resident. And on behalf of homeless service providers, and specifically the youth and young people experiencing homelessness that we serve, I implore you to extend the TL Center until you finalize a replacement wellness hub in the Tenderloin Civic Center so people do not die, or go hungry, or freeze and suffer in despair. We have welcomed referrals from the TL Center of young people seeking shelter, case management, food, hygiene, safety from the streets. We are deeply concerned about what happens when the center closes and no replacement is available. People will literally fall through the cracks from the gap in services and in the cold and rainy season is particularly cruel. Please listen to your constituents and to the many service providers who are begging you not to close the center without a replacement. People will suffer and die, and it is totally preventable. Also, I'd like to ask what happened to the Goodwill on Geary and Hyde that was supposed to serve as a, either um, a replacement center or a safe consumption site. Where's that building? Thank you so much. Hello. My name is Stephanie. I'm a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and I mainly just want to echo what has previously been said. I feel like the city has an ability to save people, and even though it isn't necessarily something that's going to completely stop the overdose crisis, it's not going to save every single person out there, I feel like every day the person that's saved, that means everything to them and to their life, and it's important for the city to continue to do so. Thank you. Hi, my name is Anne Bleetenthal. I work with the ABD Productions and Skywatchers Ensemble. Um, I, 
The fact that we're here today to me is completely astonishing, um, that we have to argue for something that is, um, in my mind, a no-brainer, a success, um, a feather in your cap. Um, the center was set up with zero pre-planning to address devastating public health crisis that both preceded the announcement and continues today. And all of uh, I think all of us here who live or work in the Tenderloin um, after, after the initial declaration witnessed um, a, a really unprecedented and remarkable coming together, a coalition building across all kinds of differences um, in order to make that center the success that it became. It's, it's nothing less than a, a, a small miracle and a beautiful, powerful, um, uh, effort that is going on there. Um, uh, residents, artists, care providers, organizers all came together and continue to work together in a really remarkable way. And the bottom line is that, that the center is saving lives every day. We know what will happen if it's shut down without a replacement. We know that people will die. We know that people will be abandoned. We know what the, what the city is going to look like around there with all the people that are complaining, it's going to be worse. To know this and to do nothing to prevent it is, is not only tragic and devastating, it's criminal. Please implement um, Preston's resolution. We know you can and we know you must. Thank you. Thank you, next speaker. Hi, good afternoon, Jennifer Friedenbach with the Coalition on Homelessness. Uh, the TLC was opened without any community input and now seems to be closing without any community input. A transition plan, no Tenderloin org I've talked to is aware of the plan. No meeting was called among Tenderloin organizations to problem solve and the closing date is looming. If input was garnered, if community orgs were collaborated with, many would have suggested bringing these hard services to existing drop-ins, existing orgs, existing spaces that could be expanded capacity. Because what we know is drop-ins are really important. They're important for basic hygiene, for showers, for bathrooms. They're important to engage folks in services in that low threshold way. Walk in, get help. The San Francisco drop-ins have never been given the resources. They should have no access to housing, no access to treatment, no ability to register for benefits, never. The one resource, access to shelter, was cruelly taken away from our drop-ins before the pandemic. Our drop-in capacity was cut in half under Newsom, and I personally witnessed many of those closures, and the memory of one particular elderly woman with dementia wandering off into the concrete wilderness is burned into my memory. The TLC was the first San Francisco drop-in that was resourced, and what it demonstrated was the overwhelming need. Trust was developed, and now with its closure and no continuity of care, that trust will be broken unless we change course. Let's get real. This is not on the Department of Public Health. This is very squarely on the mayor's office shoulders. There are hard services provided at TLC that must continue to be accessible, that must be addressed in existing sites, in new sites, in creative sites. The mayor's office, we're asking, get serious about an incredibly serious issue. Thank you. Good afternoon, my name is Tina and I'm a case manager at Code Tenderline. So Code Tenderline is the nearest navigators. 
And so it shocks me, like, you know, we went into the center um, thinking, like, you know, it was supposed to, you know, reduce the drugs and the homelessness. So now we back to, like, it's just a drug for drug, you know, it's all about the drug thing. So my thing is, like, um, we all need to keep working together. And then, like, you know, to go in the center and see, like, you know, organizations that's for the city to come in and... Um, they have offices there. How can we navigate these services if they plan on closing? I want to see it stay open because it has helped so many people out. And then when you get when people come in, you have to get to know the person first. Some part, sometimes people don't want to stop using drugs at that particular time. But if you keep on befriending them and knowing them, they will. But we have so many places in the Tenderloin that we don't have to have everything in one building. We can have different places in different place things. Like, you know, if they want to use, let them go use at a certain, at a different building with people in there that can support them. But we need to help the other people that's out there trying to move on with their lives. And if we don't have those services there, how are they able to move on with their lives? But I do know for Cold Tenderloin, we will be there for them. And we will like to have that support for we can have that where we could be able to help people and move around in the Tenderloin because the Tenderloin is not a it's ground zero. The Tenderloin has all types of nationality people that work there, and they have all types of people that come in to do services, rich, poor. All types of people are in the Tenderloin. It's not ground zero. Thank you. Next speaker. Linda Chapman speaking for CARA. Well, this is exactly the kind of investment that the city needs to be making, a low barrier or no barrier place where triage can be done and proper referrals can be done. Um, you know, so many people who are aging or disabled are left out on the street to deteriorate. And if they weren't mentally ill to begin with, they may become so or even more so likely to become prey to drug dealers, although they might not have been addicts to start with. Then from my experience, I'm going to mention again those two young men that I had to rescue from the lawyer who's my HOA president. Uh, the board altered the Karen ordinance to cover people who were disabled because of them. All right, What did one of them need? You know, he was this young man delusional, terrified, paranoid, and he looked like a college student from UC Berkeley, you know, big football player with a beautiful suntan and so on. What did he ask for? He wanted milk and he wanted a shower because he thought he had, you know, parasites all over him. I was lucky to get the hot team to come and they seemed to be helping him. I don't know what the outcome was in the end, but you know, this is exact, what he needed was to be connected with his family again and with crisis mental health care. The other young man who was black, you know, neat and so on, just seemed to be a little disoriented, a little, I don't know what we would say, disconnected from reality a little bit. You know, he needed, we needed to make sure that he had access to stable housing if he didn't have it, and again, connection probably with his family. What did he actually try to do in our neighborhood? Well, he wanted to use the contractor's honey bucket, you know, and he was attacked viciously by my HOA president because he thought he would use the unlocked honey bucket. Well, we need to have, you know, accessible services. Thank you. Next speaker, please. 
Thank you. My name is Lydia Branston, and I'm the executive director at the Gubbio Project. And I'd like to talk directly to um, Supervisor Mandelman. Um, while I appreciate your support of uh, services for people who are in recovery. I, I, I'm going to ask to pause your time. And um, we have a general rule at the board. You're welcome to make uh, any comments you'd like, but you've got to direct comments to the committee, not to a uh, particular supervisor. OK, thank you. Sorry for that. So in general, let me just say that um, before people actually get to the stage where they are considering entering into treatment, they have to make connections. Um, the Gubbio Project is a small and welcoming organization that allows people to come in in a low barrier service as a drop-in. And every day we get to know the people that are coming in because of our low barrier of services and because we ask little questions and we have few requirements of them. And as we get to know them, we get to know what their needs are. And by building that relationship with people, we then have the ability to move people through a system where eventually, hopefully, they get to a place where they increase their health, their stability, and, and oftentimes they want to enter into treatment. And you are correct. It is hard to get people into treatment these days. I spent a day and a half on the phone the other day, and the guy who wanted to go to treatment, we didn't get him in because he left before we were able to actually make that connection. But the thing is, is that he came back. He wasn't ashamed, we didn't punish him. He came back and we did eventually get him into treatment. And, the, and we do need more treatment beds, but we also need those services where people can use drugs without shame and we can actually make those connections because without that, it's always a person-to-person -person transaction. And that's what these, these, these uh, overdose prevention sites are. They are an opportunity to engage a population of people who have very little trust. Please. Please do not close down the center. Please reconsider. And as a, as a board, I hope you all sign and say that this, this center needs to stay open for the continuum of care where people will die. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, supervisors. I'm Sarah Short. I'm with HomeRise. We're a supportive housing provider. And we're also members of the coalition, uh, Treatment on Demand Coalition and the Safer Inside Coalition. I wanted to just bring your attention to a letter uh, that 50 organizations have signed on to and, and actually sent to the mayor's office because we do believe this is squarely on the shoulders of the mayor at this point. Um, you all should have received it as well, but uh, I wanted to read some portions of it to you. Um, as Tenderloin organizations and organizations serving Tenderloin residents, we are deeply concerned with ensuring that those currently being served by the TLC do not face interruptions in care. The closure is imminent, um, and we would like your administration to ensure that the city opens a hub in the Tenderloin at an existing or new site, has an opening date, uh, for a new hub in the Tenderloin, and a plan for continuity of equivalent level services for clients currently being served. Uh, we believe the closure can be coordinated in a way that doesn't unnecessarily harm our constituents and neighbors by abruptly shutting down life-saving services with no replacement or outreach plan to inform folks of location for new services. That, that's how it is now. Um, in particular, we want to avoid a scenario where shutting down the Tenderloin Center puts people in heightened danger of fatal overdoses and other fatal health risks. Currently, over 400 people visit the center daily and have access to showers, bathrooms, referrals to services, and respite off the street. 
We also want to make sure that every current client of the TL Center has a reasonable notice about both the closure and the location services and hours of where they will be able to go. Um, again, there's 50 organizations, so I can't read them all, but I'll, I'll just let you know a few um, that have signed on to this, uh, including AIDS Legal Referral Panel, um, the Coalition on Homelessness, Harvey Milk Democratic Club, Hospitality House, Lava May. Um, Thank you. Uh, next speaker, please. Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Ellen Sotu. Last year, when the Department of Emergency Management facilitated the opening of a tenderloin linkage center, the number one recommendation made by the Mid-Market Community Benefit District was to ensure that all surrounding areas were closely monitored to prevent open-air drug dealing and drug, drug sales and drug use. Instead, to this day, the surrounding residents, workers, and visitors see increased open-air use and sales in the vicinity of a center. And according to the San Francisco Medical Examiner reports, even preliminary, there were even more overdose deaths from April through September 2022 than they were from April through September 2021. So, we must ask the question, does this model even work? Or does it simply promote more use and more dealing? If a city decides to move forward with this model without answering these questions for San Franciscans, any new site will face the same failures for clients and community members as you've witnessed at the Tenderloin Center and at Soma Rise. Meanwhile, we urge you not to extend the failed Tenderloin Center or open any new such site. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Uh, thank you, Supervisors. My name is Curtis Bradford, and I'm co-chair of the Tenderloin People's Congress, a resident-led coalition of Tenderloin residents. Um, and uh, I'm here today to ask or speak in support of the resolution and to ask all the supervisors to please sign on. Uh, Closing the center without a plan for how we're going to make sure that the folks who are receiving services there get continuous and continuity in services is, to me, unconscionable. I can't even imagine that we would consider doing that, knowing that we're still in this emergency crisis. The emergency isn't over, right? It was, if this emergency was so important when we opened the center, how come, you know, if we're not through this yet, right? And just closing it uh, with a vague notion that we're going to open some smaller sites in other neighborhoods um, over the course of a year is, I think, irresponsible and even immoral, immoral, in my opinion. We know that these people are coming there for, to get the services. We know people need these services. We know this is an emergency, and yet we're just going to abandon people again. When I was at, um, many years ago, when I was using as an addict, and I'm a former and recovering addict, um, I had finally gotten to a place where I was receiving services at a, at a, a low threshold drop-in center, and I had built a relationship with people there. And um, it didn't happen right away, but at getting services there, I actually got clean. I started to get clean. I actually started making changes in my life. I got clean. They got me in a net of sorrow. I was doing pretty good. Um, but all of a sudden, that center decided to close. They just canceled the services. They gave me a warm handoff to another place, but... The vibe was different. The people were different. I was treated differently. I didn't have access. Within two weeks, I had relapsed. 
and it cost me several more years of life using and in and out and on and off the streets. Um, that could have been avoided. We can avoid that right here because that's what's going to happen to people that are receiving services right now. Some of those people are counting on those services, depend on those services, and they're going to be abandoned again. Please don't let that happen. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Sarah Bitten. I have three kids, Solomon, Jordan, Jared, Jordan, and Ashante Lanham. I can't, I, I, I can't get on the internet like you. I'm blackballed. Okay, um, I would like an investigation done, please. Um, at the Monarch Hotel where I'm located, okay, where it, it, everything is like Hollywood, I'm, I'm told to shut the fuck up, bitch. Um, they cut the phone off. They cut the heat off. I apologize I'm, to the speaker I'm, for the interruption. I'm, con I'm considered as a snitch. Okay. Um, I apologize to the speaker for the interruption, but we do need to stick to the topic of the item before us. Okay, so can you help me out and just give me a chance, please? Okay, because I'm being tortured every day. And so... Sometimes I have to stop and think about what I'm saying. I'm blackballed. I don't get the information. I can't get on, go on the internet and get the information that you get at the library. I can't log on, okay? My storages have been taken. My cards have been taken. My Section 8 vouchers that was given from me, given to me at the, before I went to the Arlington Hotel, I came here uh, and spoke on what I was going to. In return, you guys turn around and had them sell the Arlington Hotel and put me out on the street with an illegal um, eviction on my record to get me on a drug charge. I'm not on drugs. I smoke weed. That's all. And you know this because you look at me like I'm looking at you at the Monarch Hotel. They got cameras on the inside of the rooms. Okay? Um, I can't even make a phone call. The phones are, are, are cut off. And I would like to talk to my kids. They moved my kids. Okay, my son, Jerry, they moved Jerry Jordan. He's a Jehovah Witness. They moved him to Florida, okay? I would like the investigation done on um, Mr. Calvin Williams, who the police put out on the street uh, to do a double murder and decided to put me on the street to get to, um, try to set me up on the drug charge. I don't do drugs. I don't hear voices that are not real, and I'm not crazy. Thank you. Thank you. Madam Senior. Clerk, do we have any uh, remote uh, public commenters? Yes, we have 10 callers on the line with eight in the queue. Please forward the first caller. Good afternoon, Chair and Committee members. Eliana Binder, Policy Associate for Glide, and a member of both the Safer Inside and Treatment on Demand Coalition. We are in strong support of this resolution. The Tenderloin Emergency Initiative purported to be a strategic plan for ending the overdose crisis, a cause we care about profoundly and work on every day at Glide. An outgrowth of the initiative, the Tenderloin Linkage Center, now Tenderloin Center, is providing life-saving and vital services to hundreds of people every day. This includes both people experiencing homelessness and people who are housed who feel safer accessing the center's harm reduction services instead of using in isolation. The overdose crisis is ongoing, 
inclement weather has arrived, and prior to the December closure of the center, replacement services must be established in order to maintain continuity of care. Other pre-existing harm reduction services already require additional resources, and this need will surely grow due to the surge in demand that will result from the center's closure. There are other services the center provides, such as overs prevention services and hygiene services that are not provided elsewhere to scale. The thousands of people accessing the center and the hundreds of overdose reversals there demonstrate an undeniable need in San Francisco and how powerful these interventions can be. San Francisco also has a dearth of drop-in centers that provide basic necessities such as respite, bathrooms, showers, and laundry. The center provides these services along with benefits applications and connections to jobs and housing. A service gap would be supremely damaging for those who have come to rely on the center and the safety of community provides. We need to ensure continuity of care and services. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. May we please have the next caller? Good afternoon, Chair and Committee members. Wesley Saver, Senior Policy Manager for Glide. Thank you, Supervisor Preston, for championing this resolution. San Francisco lacks adequate community health infrastructure. We're not measuring all the people who want treatment. We're not adequately staffed as a city to serve those who we know for sure do. Pre-existing programs are under-resourced. The overdose crisis is ongoing, and we're unable to provide treatment on demand. At a time when we should be expanding access the mayor is instead closing one of the most highly and consistently utilized harm reduction programs in the country. In February, DEM Director Mary Ellen Carroll said they were going to potentially have people arrested if they didn't engage with the Tenderloin Center. DEM wanted to use a, quote, push involving SFPD. Director Carroll said, you can either engage in services or go to this place or the police are going to intervene. Despite that being an inexcusable outreach tactic and one we wholly oppose, that's how badly the city wanted people to engage with the Tenderloin Center. Now, after almost a year of successful operation by providers like HealthRight 360 and Co-Tenderloin, inexplicably, the center is going to be closed without any alternatives arranged. So DPH shared at the treatment on demand hearing last week and in their presentation today just how essential a full spectrum of care is to the community. But the mayor's going to close a centralized location, offering low threshold, holistic care to hundreds of people a day. And if, as Tom Polino said, the goal was to learn lessons, well, then the executive branch has clearly learned nothing because these actions are in direct opposition to healing and progress. This is abandonment. This is negligence. And it's contrary to undeniable demand. Please ensure that there's no gap in services for all of the hundreds of people served daily by the Tenderloin Center. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next caller. Supervisors, I kept hearing long, lengthy presentations with no standards. I think it's time for a very high-level investigation. We cannot have centers that have no standards. And I think the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, and uh, the federal government at the highest level should investigate what is happening in San Francisco. I hear these people saying, you know, temporarily we can have these things on some vacant uh, parking lot or something. 
Is that how we treat people and give them our health services? The Board of Supervisors, the Legislative Board, has failed us. We can have this. We can have this hearings a million times. You all have no clout. Laguna Honda, no clout. You are abusing our elders. Nine have died. Who's responsible for that death? Who is responsible of this? Uh, you know, trying to bring people so that, you know, pretending that you can rehabilitate them and that they die. Some of them have, have said they went over there, they got a little treatment, and then they threw them in the streets. This is not San Francisco. So supervisors, I know that you all are trying to do something to inform the people. But you are done inform us before. I apologize for the interruption. Your time has lapsed. After the fact. Thank you for your comments. Next caller, please. Good afternoon, um, supervisors, and thank you so much for having this hearing. I'm Ellen Grant. I'm a San Francisco resident of District 8, and I love you, uh, Supervisor Mandelman. Um, I'm also a co-founder of Mothers Against Drug Addiction and Death, and maybe um, I've met a few of you. Uh, many of our members have kids who use the services regularly, including the TLC. And, and I think, you know, from our perspective, we, we're coming at this, we want to be helpful and constructive, and we love the fact that the TLC gives dignity, community, and a safe space. And the only problem is the illicit consumption, which has gotten so out of hand. Now you can see YouTube posted of videos of people doing karaoke in the TLC's courtyard. It's just shocking, and it's not wellness. Uh, our members have gone in to try to get services, but they only get drug supplies. So it's a cultural shift that needs to happen to really make it wellness. Um, furthermore, as Newsom cited in vetoing SB 57, supervised consumption can bring unintended consequences, and they are real. We have been looking at this because we are concerned for our kids. We're concerned for San Francisco. Look at Vancouver, which is the first place in North America to have a supervised consumption site. Look at what's happened there. Look at Calgary. They had a super, several supervised consumption sites and they dialed them back after looking at the impact in detail. Great information. You should look at it. And look at Harlem. The Greater Harlem Coalition has spoken out vociferously against the supervised consumption sites, which are attracting more drug dealers and more users into, into Harlem and making it harder for their community, the kids to go to school and so forth without encountering needles everywhere. Our main concern with the supervised consumption site is they act like magnets, attracting more drug dealers. More drug dealers attract more users. I apologize the for the interruption. Each caller's speaker's being given two minutes. Thank you for your comments. Next caller, please. Hello, my name is Darren Mark Stalkup, a resident of the Tenderloin and a founder of the World Peace Movement here in San Francisco, California. I have two things to say. Um, one, I believe the linkage center should be closed down. Uh, I'm seeing an increase in overdose deaths. Um, I'm noticing uh, that the 
Honduran cartel is um, surrounding these linkage centers, and they are targeting a lot of these users who are trying to get help, who are trying to make a better life for themselves. And I'm just wondering, what are we doing about the Honduran cartel? And you guys have been talking about this for months. We need to look at where these drugs are coming from. Fentanyl is coming from the south, not the north. But we do need to look to Canada and see how their linkage centers up there have increased overdose deaths in their cities as well. The information and data is there. Number two, I have started a petition, a grassroots petition, to declare a state of emergency for the fentanyl humanitarian crisis happening in San Francisco. Um, it's not just happening in the Tenderloin, it's happening throughout all of the neighborhoods of San Francisco. And if you go on change.org and you search San Francisco fentanyl, you will see our petition where hundreds and hundreds of San Francisco citizens and celebrities and people from all around the world have signed the petition to declare a state of emergency for San Francisco's fentanyl humanitarian crisis. So I would like to ask that you guys please do something about the Honduran cartel and please declare a state of emergency for this fentanyl crisis for all of San Francisco, not just the Tenderloin. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next caller, please. Hi, this is Laura Thomas. I'm the Senior Director of HIV and Harm Reduction Policy at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and a resident of District 10. Uh, first of all, thank you to Supervisor Preston for calling this hearing. Um, and I want to echo some of my colleagues in uh, saying the services that are being provided at the Tenderloin Center are essential and life-saving. Um, this was declared, overdose was declared an emergency it is still an emergency and we must treat it as such. Arbitrarily opening and closing programs to generate headlines or create the appearance of action is not sufficient. We have to actually expend resources, do the difficult work, um, you know, develop a backbone and uh, provide the kind of overdose prevention services that we know are needed in this city and that we know will save lives. There are drop-in sites around the Tenderloin. Um, there are harm reduction services that could be expanded, that could be added to, um, but the bottom line is there's no reason to close the Tenderloin Center. This is an entirely arbitrary uh, line that's been drawn December 5th, um, and there, you know, we have the resources to keep it open, um, we can continue uh, to provide these services in that location until other locations are found. We need immediate and clear action from City Hall uh, that is not about the headlines or the press releases, but it is about actual care and compassion for all people living in the Tenderloin, the housed and the unhoused. Um, there is an evaluation that's being done of the services in the Tenderloin and the impact. I'm not sure why that data is not being presented to the Board of Supervisors. I apologize in this for interrupting context. the speaker. Your time um, has lapsed. Thank you. 
Thank you for your comments. There are currently nine callers on the line with two in the queue. Please forward the next caller. Hello, supervisors. My name is Sheba. I'm a public policy manager at HomeRise, a permanent supportive housing provider in the city. I'm calling as a member of the Treatment on Demand Coalition asking the city to continue providing services for community members in need. When people say that they have lost faith in the system, this is exactly what they mean. 400 people, 400 people a day access the basic human needs um, and services such as showers, medical supplies, food, um, public and behavioral health um, services, COVID testing, SDI testing. Um, so I'm calling to ask this committee and urge you all um, to ask us the leaders and DPH to continue providing support services to the program participants who have relied on this center for the last year. It is essential that there are no gaps in services for people utilizing the center. In the last few months, the center has definitely become a beacon of hope for all the unhoused people who have nowhere to go in the city. As you've heard from other callers today and speakers, there is no shelter access at this moment. Um, we, the center also provides um, access to low barrier harm reduction supplies for those who are actually housed. Harm reduction providers at the Tindalloin Center have performed life-saving services to help those who are experiencing overdose, overdoses in real time. So please open the proposed wellness hub, work with the community organizations and providers at the Tenderloin Center and in the Tenderloin community on how operational replacements will actually function before the closure of the TL Center. And if a space has not been identified by the time of the closure, please expand the support services and please don't close the center before there's um, another um, space allocated. No gaps in services and thank you so much, bye. Thank you for your comments. Next caller. Good afternoon, supervisors. I'm absolutely baffled that after the long conversation that we had as a region on uh, December 22nd, 23rd about standing up the center that we're now having a conversation about closing it. I'm absolutely baffled as my supervisor would say. Um, and I will spare you the Italian-American <laughs> uh, version of it because your ears will ring. But uh, I, what also baffles me is why was this center put next to a major transport, mass transit center in Barch? And I think that's a really bad idea. I think that that dissuades people from making transit their first choice. And I call upon this Board of Supervisors to, re to really think about if they want on the transit center between their world famous, most beautiful city hall in the world with some of the smartest people, and I would certainly put Supervisors Mandelman and Preston on that list alongside you know who, um, because my, you know, and I will just say, and I, and I want to, I also want to give thanks on this season of Thanksgiving to the San Francisco clerk's office and the rest of the parliamentary staff, staff for all the work you do in the season of Thanksgiving. But what I would really be thankful for from the board of supervisors is, um, that you would re really consider the impact on transit riders and the message that it sends putting a having drugged out folks and homeless folks uh, next to it, it, it really dissuades people from taking transit. The last time I 
tried to get onto the transit from City Hall. Uh, there was a bunch of drug dealers around the uh, and drug activities uh, around all the uh, entrances to the to your Mooney Metro and BART. So, you know, really encourage you to I be strategic about this. I apologize for interrupting the speaker. Your time has lapsed. Thank you for your comments. We're looking for other. There are no other speakers on the line. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. And um, I will just um, conclude by, by saying a, a couple of things that I think are clear from this hearing. You know, one is we have the resources in the current budget where we don't need to be closing this center and terminating services on December 4th, and we could be standing up uh, another site and services. I, you know, we are months from when the site closure was announced and it makes no sense whatsoever that there is not a more detailed plan for replacement of services and a, an announcement of uh, a wellness hub opening uh, in the Tenderloin Civic Center area uh, to serve the folks who are being served by, by the Tenderloin Center. So I, I unfortunately, this is an example of um, politics being played with people's lives and I think it's reprehensible, I think it's cruel, um, but I don't think it's too late to do right by all the folks who are relying on these services now and in, in the future. So the administration absolutely could open a site to ensure uh, that one of these newer new envisioned wellness hubs is active and there's no gap in services. And I haven't heard anything that uh, that suggests we couldn't do that. Uh, thus far, the mayor's refused to do that. Um, and I think it really undermines, very unfortunately, undermines the stated commitment and I think some of the progress we were making toward a public health-led approach to overdoses and the overdose crisis in, in San Francisco. So that said, my office remains eager to collaborate with the mayor's office, with Department of Public Health to identify a new wellness hub and get it active as soon as possible. Uh, I'm hoping something comes to my inbox in the upcoming days uh, from someone who listened to this hearing and wants to be part of the solution and actually has control over uh, some property nearby. Uh, so let's hope that happens, um, but we will work collaboratively to, uh, to try to identify and open a new site and also to e extend services on site. I cannot for the life of me understand and have really not heard any reason whatsoever why there would not be a short extension if of the current services if there is not a new site announced um, by that time and, uh, and at minimum a, a real detailed plan to ensure no gap in services. So we are uh, on track here to fail the neighborhood, fail the people who are relying on this uh, center and who are some of the most vulnerable people in our city after we have done an experiment which is the opposite of failing the very folks here and, and, and is about being bold as a city in trying to solve our crisis. So there's still a not, it is not too late. I wanna emphasize that. I think we can change course on this. I'm hoping our resolution plays a role in that. Um, and unless there are further comments uh, or questions from 
colleagues, um, I would like to go ahead and uh, make a motion to send this resolution to the full Board of Supervisors with positive recommendation as a committee report. Madam Clerk. Thank you. On the motion to forward this to the full Board of Supervisors with a positive recommendation as a committee report, Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman? Yes. Mandelman, no. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. There are two ayes. And Member Mandelman in the dissent. Thank you, Madam Clerk. The motion passes, and uh, thanks to uh, everyone from Department of Public Health, Mayor's Office, and the public uh, for uh, their participation in this hearing today. Um, Madam Clerk, please call item three for closed session. Item number three is an ordinance authorizing settlement of a lawsuit filed against the city and county of San Francisco. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001. When prompted, enter meeting ID 2493-481-7808, then pound, and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you. Madam Clerk, let's go ahead and open up public comment for the closed session item. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number three? Please line up to your right. Remote public call-in members, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. Seeing no in-chamber public comment, we'll go to the call lines. We have three callers on the line with one in the queue. Please forward the speaker. Hi, Supervisors. It's Ellen Grant calling again um, from District 8. And um, I, I think this is about the um, provision of homeless or, uh, housing for, for homeless people, the I expectation that housing is going to be available. Public Go comment ahead. for item 2 has already closed. We are now currently on item number 3. Right. Right. It's about the lawsuit. And what I'm, what I'm concerned about is that San Francisco is... Hello? Yes, your time has been resumed. San Francisco is also also vulnerable to being sued for, you know, the appearance of having a continuum of treatment care when in reality that there is no care. I mean, it's not there's no care. There's there's not enough such that people in our group who write to us regularly are finding that there isn't, you know, there's such a long line to get treatment that um, they're they're expecting treatment. They're expecting the continuum. And it's not there. So that's my comment. I'm worried about, you know, future liability, about the expectation of treatment on demand in San Francisco because it's not, not even close. Thank you. There are no other speakers on the line. Thank you. Uh, public comment is uh, closed. And I'll move to convene in closed session. Uh, please call the roll. To convene in closed session, Chair, Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you. We'll now convene in closed session.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
We are now back in open session. Thank you for your patience while we were away. Um, Madam Clerk, please report on the closed session deliberations. During closed session, the committee accepted an amendment to the legislation and continued the item to the November 17th meeting. Item number three. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And I'd like to move not to disclose the closed session discussions. Please call the roll. Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, I. Member Mandelman. Mandelman, I. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, I. There are three ayes. Thank you. Any further business before the committee? There's no further business. We are adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>